the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on gotodobbs.com now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skilled team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. ESPN. Circle to Butchnevich, he scores! Pavel Butchnevich, a one-timer slapper from the near circle for the first of the year for St. Louis. Blues to Barbashev, he scores! Ivan Barbashev has put the Blues on top. Neighbors on the backhand, he scores! Jake Neighbors on a turnover, gets the puck, and a terrific backhand. Throws it into the back of the net. And Neighbors gets his second goal in the National Hockey League. Bring out the Zamboni. Win number one of the new season in the books. And the Blues beat the Blue Jackets 5-2 to tonight. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Coming up later on in the show. We're going to talk about the Blues' new clear-cut top line, but right now we do begin with the Blues. That's what it sounded like on Saturday night as the Blues opened up the season with the Battle of the Blue. Oh, and the Blues reign supreme! Let's go! 5-2 winner at home. Now it's just Alex the Columbus Jackets. was in the arena as the Blues took home ice for the first time. They'll be back in action, you know, five days later on Wednesday. <laughs> Two Great. games in 11 days. That makes no sense on HL. Alex, those were a lot of highlights we had to play coming back from break. They scored five goals. One of my biggest questions about the team going into the season was how would they respond? No more David Perron. That is a big hit to the offense, especially on the power play. I got to say special teams looked pretty good. One for three on the power play, two for two on the penalty kill. Can't ask for a whole lot better than that. Would you see from the offense in particular in game number one? They are just as lethal as they were last season. And it was pretty evident with that line of Thomas Tarasenko and Buchnevich. Buchnevich scores the power play goal, which is is as sexy of a power play goal as you can ask for. I mean, it was two passes and then a one-timer in the back of the net. And that's also big because remember, Everyone was asking what happens when you lose that one-time shot in David Perron. Now, it was on the other side from where Perron usually is, but it's always good to have that threat. But then you get the two goals from Vladimir Tarasenko, and honestly, that line picked up right where it left off last season. Now, there were some moments in the game that they were overpassing and not making the shot rather than just trying to find overpassing. I know who would have thought with that, but I think there's so much skill on this team that you're going to see a lot of that. There's going to be nights that you're thinking, why don't they just shoot the puck? But 
they also have so much skill on every single line that can create that offense. I mean, Jake Neighbors getting that goal solely off of just big play along the boards. The defense was jumping in. I think that is going to be a massive key to this offense up where they left off last season. You've got the two defensemen who five of the six defensemen have offensive mindsets. So every line looks like they've got the offensive ability to do something. And especially when you have that top line, Joey said it post game. He believes that Thomas Tarasenko and Buchnevich might be the best offensive line or one of the best offensive lines by the end of the season in the NHL. Got the potential to. Yeah. I mean, Pavel Buchnevich, I saw in, I think it was JR's piece earlier today. Somebody said, hey, a bold prediction for the season. Pavel Buchnevich scored 40, four, scores 40 goals. JR said, yeah, I could see it. Because Thomas could get 75 assists yeah. and it would be right there with him. Now, is it likely? No, I would probably bet on the under, but... Over 30 seems definitely within the realm of the possible. Man, I thought they looked really good. Second period, it was kind of weird. First period, yeah, it was... A blues thing. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a blues thing, man. It First, just second happens. Second period doesn't exist. First period was, it felt like two teams trying to feel each other out. And then by the third period, the blues were just clearly the better team. And some of that was probably... I mean, I know that it feels like the season just began, but for other teams, they've been playing for a while, not named the Blues. Blue Jackets were coming off of a back-to-back. I believe that was their third game, if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken. It didn't seem like they had their legs in them, and the Blues took advantage. Give them full credit for doing exactly that. I thought the top line looked awesome with Buchnevich, Thomas, and Tarasenko. The power play looked every bit as good as you were hoping that it would. Third line was okay. It's interesting because the, the Shin and Neighbors line You could tell that they brought physicality to the game. You look at their analytics, not great from game number one. I think they'll get there, though. What did you see from O'Reilly and Cairo? That was the line that, like, I just frankly don't have a whole lot of takeaways at all from them. Every other line, I think you could have something. The third, the the second line, I guess you would call it with O'Reilly and Cairo. I didn't really have a big takeaway. Yeah, I mean, look, they didn't seem to be on the same page together in that first game but it's hard to sit here and say they had a bad night because Jordan Cairo had eight shot attempts in that game as a line they combined 14 total shot attempts nine shots on goal so they had a really decent outing it's just you could tell the chemistry was off like Brandon Saad was trying to kind of get going a little bit so was Jordan Cairo and it's funny because I talked with O'Reilly Saturday after their morning skate and I asked him kind of what we talked about last week like how How long does it take to build chemistry with a new line mate when you're not familiar with them? And I thought it was more on Kairou playing to O'Reilly's level. And O'Reilly made it pretty, pretty clear. It's more me getting up to what he wants to do, because as the centerman, you have more responsibility with the puck. And he's like, David Perron was a guy, he said, that liked to when he would be away from the puck, he'd like to go towards the net and wait for the shot. Jordan and Ky- you knew exactly the other thing is you knew exactly where he was going to be. Actually, like he, he had that spot that he was going to go to and he'd be there every time. And there was a was play a whole lot of on Saturday where Ryan O'Reilly wrapped around the net and Jordan Cairo went behind him to try and get to another spot behind the net for the pass. So he's like, it's just getting to the point where you understand where that line mate goes. And he said, there's no timetable for it. But he did say, I can promise you that when we click, that's where it turns into a hot streak. So it might not have looked great in the first game. Frankly, I'd have to go back and look at it, but I don't know if they skated on a line together more than two preseason games. So there's not a whole lot of practice against NHL teams. I think they'll be fine. I do believe, though, that when Logan Brown is healthy, and I know I'm the Logan Brown guy, but I think what they are going to experiment with 
is see how Shen can play up with there with them and move Saad down to the third line. Because then you might look at a Saad Barbashev or a Saad Neighbors Brown line, which doesn't sound great, but I think they want to see what Shen can do on the wing. Yeah, I I mean, you look back at the numbers, like 10 scoring chances for that O'Reilly Kairou line, three high danger chances, four, zero against. You look at the numbers, it looks really good. I just never really felt like they were dominating the game the way that you would like to see with that line. But that'll come. Mm -hmm. I'm not in any way, shape, or form concerned about it. The line that impressed me maybe the most, just because we didn't know what it was going to look like, was the fourth line, man. Someone said that. Noah Chari throwing his body around six hits in the game. What? (laughs) What did you say? I said T-Bone. He was the one that that credited the fourth line was going to be good this year. Oh. Alexei Torbchenko oh, with yeah, five hits in the game as well. So he had 11 hits from those two combined on your fourth line. And Alex, I, as I was thinking about it a little bit more, and then as I heard Craig Berube talking after the game, saying this about his fourth line. I thought that fourth line had a great third period for us. Like they were physical and controlling the play in the offensive zone, gave us momentum. I think that I've figured it out. I think I understand now where you're coming from on the fourth line. When you don't have one, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. Like last year, the Blues had one player on their fourth line that did a whole lot of anything. And it was Alexi Torpchenko. And by the end of the season, he got moved up to the third Shots line as a result Clifford. of that. But I still think that the Blues had every opportunity to be able to go on a run in the playoffs. If they beat the Avs, I sincerely believe the Blues would have gone on to win the Cup. There's no way to know, of course, but I I genuinely believe if Bennington doesn't get hurt, I think they beat the abs. If they beat the abs, I think they go on to win the cup and they would have done so without much of a fourth line. So if you don't have one, I think you can overcome it. But when you do have one, man, it just makes you feel so much more comfortable. You get into that third period. Ruby clearly trusts that line. He was throwing them over the boards in the fourth line or in the third period to be able to finish that thing out for him because because he trusts them to do the right things. It almost reminds me of when your team has a fifth starter that you trust, like when the Cardinals, it ended up being way better than this. But when they went out and acquired Jose Quintana to be that fifth starter and he said, "Okay, I know exactly what we're getting out of him every single time he goes out there. He's going to go five plus innings. He's going to give me or he's going to give up two earned runs or fewer. That's what Jose Quintana is. That's what this fourth line is. They have the potential to help you win some games, especially during the regular season. Once you get into the playoffs, I don't think they're necessarily going to be the reason why you win any individual game, much less a series. That's going to be on your big guys to be able to get you over the top. But especially in the regular season, you're going to have some nights where that O'Reilly Kyrou connection just isn't there. You're going to have some nights where the Buchnevich, Thomas Tarasenko, as you mentioned, Alex, they're passing too much. They're giving up some of those free shots. And you're going to need that fourth line to come through. You're going to need them to spark that energy in a mid-January game where you're in Calgary and nobody really wants to be on the road any longer because you're going through that West Coast uh, Canada trip. That's what this fourth line can provide for them. They are the energy givers, and I guess we kind of saw that on on Saturday night. Yeah, Credit I, where it's due. I agree with you on, on that point, and I think the fourth line is more impactful in the postseason than others will give it credit for, but I think they have to have that impactful moment. Um Honestly, Joey said it with me on pregame that it could be very similar to what they had in 2019 with that fourth line of Sunquist, Barbashev, and Alexander Steen. I don't know if it's going to get to that level because that line was so impactful that they were playing like third line minutes. But Craig Berube started that fourth line two out of the three times that they scored a goal 
in the third period on Saturday night, they were the line that started once they scored the goal. And in one thing that the Blues fell victim to last season was they'd score a goal and then they'd give a goal up right after that opening faceoff following the goal. So it tells you that he trusts them. And another example of to it is how long did Ryan O'Reilly play in that game? 15 minutes and 42 seconds. That's not Ryan O'Reilly numbers. And it's because now granted Thomas's line played an awful lot. We'll talk about that later, but it's also because that line is eating some minutes more to where you're not relying on Ryan O'Reilly so much in games like you had to the last couple of seasons. Plus I think between Achari and Torpchenko, they had 11 hits in that game. So they're bringing the physical side, which is something that they lacked last season also. Yeah. And that's where it reminds me of the fifth starter, right? Is it, it takes some of the, it takes some of the pressure off of your bullpen instead of having to cover like five innings, whenever your fifth starter potentially gets shelled out there, you're able to rest them a little bit. And then it makes it even better when you get back to that number one starter that you've got in your rotation. So it is important, especially in the regular season. I think there's a lot of value to what the blues are able to get out of their fourth line. And we saw that on display on Saturday night coming up in about 15 minutes. We're going to dive into some NFL quick hitters, including some teams on both ends of the spectrum from the weekend. The three contenders or so-called contenders that probably need to be put into a separate category now and three teams that are so much better than any of us could have expected. We'll get into that coming up in 15 minutes, but coming up next, Cardinals are keeping the band together in the front office. Boys, they announced some extensions earlier today. We'll tell you what they are coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Cardinals, they're doing so much right. I'm not going to do the whole Cardinal system here. They're doing a lot right, which puts them in, again, in this position where they could package a few of these guys together. Maybe not those two specific. They could put a few guys together and probably acquire anyone in baseball who's available in trade. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Sander Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. That was Keith Law on the athletic podcast midway through the baseball season. And the reason why he brought that up is because at the time we were talking about, hey, what are the Cardinals going to do at the trade deadline and who could they realistically acquire? And Keith Law basically says, hey, their farm system is so good. They could realistically acquire quite literally anybody that they wanted to. Uh. And a lot of that credit needs to go to Randy Flores, who is their scouting director, who drafted a lot of the players that are now considered to be some of the top prospects in all of Major League Baseball and Michael Gersh, who listen, man, I know that a lot of people say, oh, what does Gersh do? He doesn't even do any." According to John Mosaylock, and you can believe it or not, I don't much care, but according to John Mosaylock, Gersh deserves most, if not all, of the credit for the Jordan Montgomery trade, which ended up really helping the Cardinals down the stretch, and next year should pay off for them uh, by having a left-handed pitcher that is, at a minimum, an innings eater for them coming out of their rotation. So those two guys deserve a lot of credit for the team that they have currently assembled. And both of them were rewarded apparently this week with multi-year contract extensions. According to Derek Gould, he reported this over at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The Cardinals have announced Michael Gersh and Andy Flores have agreed to multi-year contract extensions within the past week. Both of their deals had expired or were set to expire going into this offseason. My biggest takeaway on this is, is very simple. These guys earned it. With what they have done in their jobs over the last few years, they have earned the right to be retained in those respective roles. 
I think Flores is a future general manager. I don't know if it's going to be here. I don't know if it's going to be elsewhere. But Randy Flores, with the job that he has done in St. Louis, has earned enough respect with his ability to identify talent within the draft that that guy is a future general manager somewhere. And so for the Cardinals to be able to keep him here for the foreseeable future, uh, that's good job by them. And then for them to be able to keep Michael Gershon in-house, who has been interviewed by other teams to take over their respective franchise. Ivan Gersh, whether it's here or elsewhere, will be heading up a baseball ops department within the near future. So those two guys staying here for the at least near term, I think is a good thing for the Cardinals. It's a good day. I'm more than thrilled for both of them, but a little more so for Randy Flores. And this is no disrespect to Michael Gersh, but when you think of where the Cardinals draft system was at prior to Randy Flores for five to 10 years. It wasn't great. I mean, every time there was a draft, you'd be thinking like, okay, they got to get somebody, they get a guy and then position player wise. I I would disagree with that on the, on the pitching side, man. I I, I don't know. Sometime pitching wise, I think they had their gems, but there was a while there where it just seems like they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. And now they've finally struck it with Randy Flores and they have, They've more than struck it with Randy Flores because it seems like every single player that is drafted, you're already talking about being some type of impact player for this Cardinals team. Yeah, and and Flores, I think, was going to be a really hot commodity going into it. And I think Gersh would have been, too, this offseason. But I think Flores probably more so just because he has that background of the development side now of drafting Jordan Walker, Mason Wynn. I know Baez hasn't gotten very far yet in his minor league career, but Joshua Baez, a highly touted prospect as well in that I mean, 2020 look at that draft. 2020 draft. You look at Burleson as well. I forgot Burleson was in that 2020 no. draft. So Tinkens, he was also in that. So like you look at that draft, and that would be something that a team like I don't know if I don't think Detroit's named a GM, or I think they maybe they did, and it's the guy they just kept in house, or like the Royals that they're going to keep the guy that they named in house. But those are the kind of teams that would look at that are going to go through those phases of rebuilding tear it down rebuild go back to the studs that's the kind of guy that they would look at they would look at someone like a randy flores and then michael gersh we know last year last year two years ago, i can't remember exactly when but he was talking with the new york mets there was rumors that the mets were interested in him so to see that you're able to keep both those guys that are going to be hot commodities on the market when it comes to looking at whether it be Pubble positions or general man- manager positions for the Cardinals to be able to retain those guys. It's important. It keeps the foundation together and it keeps it in, in what's going to be a very important offseason for them. So that's a good thing for John Mozalek and the Cardinals uh, front office to get these guys locked up for multiple years. Yeah, Alex, you mentioned that uh, prior to Randy Flores, the Cardinals drafting and development system wasn't in a great place. Like whether we disagree on the pitching side or not doesn't much matter. The position player side, I'm with you. They just didn't develop stars. That, that's been the problem for the Cardinals over the last really, I mean, you can go all the way back 15 years, is that they haven't developed star players internally. There is maybe no organization that I trust more than the Cardinals to develop a Brendan Donovan or a Tommy Edmond, like a really solid complimentary piece that if he's batting fifth, sixth, seventh in your lineup, you could be a championship contending team because of that guy batting in that spot in your order. And they probably play really excellent defense and they run the base as well. That's what this organization has produced forever. The problem is they haven't really produced that superstar talent. And one is coming through the ranks right now, and that is Jordan Walker. And Matt Holliday was on with the fast lane on Friday. And I know we've had our conversations about Walker as well. I I thought what Matt Holliday said about the process of what would lead to Walker opening the season with the Cardinals, I thought this was pretty interesting. I like the idea of throwing him in right field next year and and living with the upside. Uh, I, I think that it helps if you have, you know, enough of an offense to where you can bat him, you know, eighth or ninth and just kind of let him be the, the icing on the cake. 
But right now, I don't think the offense, you know, as far as the outfield offense right now is in a position to where uh, you can do that. So you may have to, to, to have a guy that, uh, that you can play in right field or, or if you don't think he's quite ready, that can hold the fort until he, you think he is ready. But I, I would be in the camp of let's see what he can do. I'm totally with him on that. I, I don't know, like eighth or ninth, we can quibble with where he would specifically be in the order in a best case scenario. But um, for, for the Cardinals to bring up Jordan Walker, I think they need more certainty in the outfield. Right now, you look at it like Dylan Carlson, no idea what he's going to be for you next year. Lars Newtbar, I like him, but is he a fourth outfielder? Is he a legitimate starter on an everyday basis for you? Juan Yepes, is he an outfielder? Brendan Donovan, are you playing him mostly at second base, or is he going to spend some time in the outfield next year? Those are kind of your uh, Alec Burleson. What, what is he? Is he going to be a guy that's going up and down uh, from AAA to the big leagues, kind of like Lars Newtbar was two years ago? That's possible for him. So right now, I think that the Cardinals are in a situation where they need to acquire. And Tyler O'Neill, another guy, can you really trust him going into next year? I, I think they need to acquire at least one legit starter in the outfield. And I'm talking like in every Brandon Nimmo's the name that we've thrown out there. But you could throw somebody else. Maybe it's a trade candidate. I think they need at least one other guy that you can rely upon to bat in your top five to six in the order before I feel super comfortable being like, okay, yeah, now you can throw Jordan Walker into this mix and he's going to be just able to hit hit the ground running. Is the bat more important or is the defense in the outfield bat. more important? Because, see, that's where I'm at, too, and I don't even think it has to be in the outfield form. I, that's why the shortstop position is the part that comes to me because it's guy who's got a track record. I think you do have to go get that third bat so you're not going into the season saying Jordan Walker needs to be our third bat heck Jordan Walker needs to be like your fifth bat because you should be still relying on Dylan Carlson and if Tyler O'Neill is still here or if Nolan Gorman is still here you're looking towards those individuals but it, Brandon Nimmo's the guy that you like I've mentioned Trey Turner Carlos Correa I mean honestly any of the shortstops make sense but you've got to go get that impact bat so every single night you're looking down the list and you're listing off guys who need to be performing better before you're getting to Jordan Walker's name because that's too much pressure to put on him but I do think that I would start him with the team on opening day because if he's supposed to be the future then let's start getting him reps and put him in the spot, but don't put him in the spot to be that third bat behind Goldschmidt and Arenado. And, and that's where I am. I'm, I'm basically basically with the two of you and kind of in between on the where the bat needs to be. I, I think it does need think to be he, an I outfielder. I could argue both. Like, I could argue that I, I agree with you, Alex. I need a, I think need they another need a bat, bat somewhere in the infield, whether that's a catcher or at shortstop yeah. or, hell, throw second base in there. I, I don't really care where they play. It's one of those three spots. I also think even if you do acquire that bat in the infield, I think I need somebody that I can rely upon in the outfield as well, because right now there's just too much uncertainty. Well, and that's where I like I'd like to get a bat that I can rely on as the shortstop and then just go get somebody who's okay offensively, but like really good. Adam Duvall, really type? good or oh. Andrew McCutcheon, somebody who's better defensively. So he's not a liability out there. Like that's, that's why I asked is it offense or defense for you when it comes to that outfield spot. Yeah, it seems to me, I, I, I agree, it does need to be an impact bat, and if it comes on the infield, then that's fine, but I do think you need to go add somebody that is a certainty in that outfield. That's where I agree with both of you on that, is because I think you need to be able to say, okay, our starting left fielder is, I'm just going to use left field as an example, it doesn't really matter, one of the three positions needs to be a guy you acquire in the offseason via free agency or via trade that provides certainty that this guy is going to be in our everyday lineup, not sure where he's hitting yet, but he's going to be in our everyday lineup playing one of these outfield positions. Andrew Benintendi. Ex- okay, we'll use him. He's in left field. He's, he's our a- everyday 
high left above fielder. average left fielder that will play out there, be good mm-hmm. defensively for you, and bat left-handed sixth in your lineup. He's our everyday left fielder, and I know that the jury's still out on what Carlson is going to be, but I think the Carlson or the Carlson's the Cardinals will go into next year thinking Carlson will be that guy. So you can plug him in, and he's going to be an everyday center fielder when the year starts. Now that may change depending on how the year goes along, and then I think you have a filler in right field until you either feel Walker is ready or if he's ready off the bat, off the bat, then yeah, he's in that right field spot. But if not, you've got a filler. You've got a Yepes, a Newpar, someone like that that can start in right field until he's ready and they can go the route that they did with Gorman this year where you call him up in about June. And I agree. There has to be another impact bat brought in, whether it be the outfield or whether it be on the infield, to where you don't have the scenario where, and I, it's a different it's a different case because the roster is just really depleted. And honestly, I don't know how this team made the playoffs looking back on it. But 2020, the Cardinals were hitting Carlson clean up in the playoffs. Like You can't get to a spot where Walker's probably hitting either in front of Goldie and Arnado or behind Goldie and Arnado to start when he gets called up. If he if he plays really well when he gets called up in a month in, he's hitting like 300, he's showing power, and he doesn't look overmatched, okay, then we can talk about moving him up in the order. But I, I agree. The starting point for Walker should be anywhere between that 6-9 to nine range in your lineup whenever it is that he's called up, whether that be on opening day or whether that be in June and he had to go down to AAA and work on a couple things just early on in the season. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line from the 314. Guys, it would waste an entire year if the Cardinals end up starting him on opening day. If they wait like 20 days, they would get an extra year of service time. Why would you bring him up on opening day? Here's why. If Jordan Walker is so good that you want to keep him long term, then the Cardinals are an organization that don't The Cardinals should not be like the Pirates. This is not a case where you say to yourself, hmm, man, Jordan Walker's really good. Let's keep him down for an extra 20 days because in year seven of this deal, we might not be able to afford him. No, the Cardinals can afford him. If Jordan Walker ends up being everything that he has been sold as, they should resign him whenever his contract comes up. Now, if you think that it's just bad business to operate the way that I'm discussing, okay, I think that it means that they could potentially win a few more games. And if we've learned anything about the Cardinals, they could use a few more wins during the course of the regular season because that might be the difference between them ending up in a top two seed and not having to play in the wild card round and playing in the wild card round like we saw this year. So I I would argue the other direction. If you think he is ready for opening day, he should be on the opening day roster. You should take your best team. And the Cardinals have said and Ollie Marmol has said performance is going to dictate decisions. Well, this is one of those situations where performance is going to need to dictate a decision. And I don't think the Cardinals would. I agree with you. They're not going to run on that kind of operation like some of these rebuilding clubs do. But also, the, thanks to the new CBA, I think if it's Walker gets Rookie of the Year or he ends up winning the Silver Slug or something, like if he ends up getting awards, then the Cardinals get compensation draft picks yep. as well. And that's another thing to consider about it, too. I, again, I don't think the Cardinals necessarily go, well, we can get a draft pick or we can get another extra year of service if we wait 20 days. I don't think the Cardinals operate like that. But it is also something to consider. Hey, you know what? We think this guy's really good. He wins rookie of the year. Not only is it great for us this year, but it helps us by getting a draft pick to help build for years to come. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get into some questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you guys have any questions, go ahead and get them in on the text line. We'll get to those coming up at 1145. But next, time for some NFL quick hitters, including the three teams that we thought were going to be contenders that probably need to be set into a separate category now, and another three teams that I think we need to have a hard look at as to what their future will hold, especially now that they are off to a better start than expected. We'll get into that coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We got to talk about the two different sides of things in the NFL right now. Because on one hand, there are some teams that are severely underperforming right now. Looking at you, Ravens, Bucks, and Packers. That felt a little personal. We'll talk yeah. about that later. We'll get into it. <laughs> on the other side, there are some legit surprises. Including the Bailey Zappi-led uh, Patriots. You've been zapped. The Jets and the Giants. Football is back in New York, you baby. You missed a team, man. The Commanders. Nope. Did you, didn't see that, a team. did you see that commanding victory over Chicago? They are ready to take command. Um, <laughs> okay, let's, start, <laughs> let's start with the bad and then we'll get to the good. Oh, good. I love that. Out of the Ravens, the Bucks, and the Packers, for you, Alex... Who has been the most disappointing so far this year? Um, Packers ooh. losing this weekend, say, twenty-seven to ten at home against the Jets. I would say the Throw Ravens. That out there. I would say the Ravens because the Ravens' defense has not been able to stop anything, and I thought that defense was going to be much better. The Bucks, as bad as they are, and a lot of it is on the defensive side. At least the last couple of weeks. You know their issue. They have no offensive line. They lost a guy, and then they they lost a guy via free agency. And the Packers, we all knew the Packers were not going to be very good because their offense was awful. I didn't expect their defense to be this bad, but I think the one that's probably the most surprising out of those three that have been bad have been the Ravens because I thought the Ravens were going to be one of the top teams in the AFC this year. I think I agree with you. I think it would be the Ravens. The defense has been really disappointing, especially when you have three leads going into the fourth quarter against Miami. Uh, the game this week, and then I'm trying to forget who the other one was that they had. Oh, it was a Buffalo. I think Buffalo, they blew a lead in the fourth quarter as well. So I, w- I would say... Hey, that was a push for your boy Ferrario, though. <laughs> yeah. I would say Baltimore. I, <laughs> I, I think Tampa Bay, you can point to their issues. Offensive line beat up, and you look at the wide receiver corps has been in and out this year. And then Green Bay, as surprising as it is that they have struggled, I mean, you could honestly see that one coming, too. We talked about in the offseason, like, who the hell is Riders going to throw to? And they still don't know. Yeah, so no, I would Randall say Baltimore. broken. Yeah, I'd, who could have seen that coming? Uh, I think uh, I think Baltimore's definitely the most surprising. Do you know how many receiving yards on the season Aaron Jones has? On the season? Five. Okay, well. Oh, sorry, I, I felt like it was going to be a really low I think number. it's supposed to be really high because he shouldn't have. I will say oh. 225. 120 yards receiving on the season. He's the played team? six games. No, it's leading the team. Alan Lazard leads the, leads the team with 285. Then it's Randall Cobb because, of course, Romeo well, Dubs and uh, Robert Tunyon actually had a really good game this week despite wasn't, the fact that they stunk. So wasn't Christian Watson their like, first-round pick? And mm-hmm. he's not even... He's had 50 yards receiving. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Way to spend a first-round pick. They they have done nothing with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon in the passing game. My team that has been disappointing is the Packers. This offense stinks, guys. Like, it is terrible. The Jets' defense is really solid. But when you go back to back to back to back weeks of scoring 14 against Tampa Bay, scoring 27 in overtime against the New England Patriots, then 22 against the Giants and uh, 10 at home against the Jets, something is broken and it's got to get fixed quickly. I still think they're probably going to make the playoffs because the NFC isn't very good. But they have no reason. There is nothing that we have seen so far this year that would indicate to any of us that the Packers are a legitimate contender other than the jerseys they're wearing and the names that are on the, on that jersey. That's it. It's the fact that they've got Aaron Rodgers and the fact that they've been there, done that before. Other than that, man, there's no evidence this year that that's a good football team. It's not. Maybe Aaron Rodgers isn't showing enough love to his teammates. Have you heard him after the games? No, he sounds miserable, just like Tom Brady 
screams like he's miserable. Can we talk a little bit about the Bucks? Tom Brady lit into his offensive line the other day. <laughs> they have the same issues as the Packers. Their passing offense is broken. And Tom Brady, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, is part of their problem. It's impossible. It's crazy to say that it's broken with how many weapons that they truly have. Yeah. But Tom Brady, and I don't even know if it's all on Tom Brady. It's the fact that that offensive line, he's under pressure every time he snaps the ball. Like, there is no blocking for Tom Brady. He has less than three seconds to get that ball out. But that's when he's typically operated well, is when he's getting rid of the ball quickly. And for whatever reason, their offense just seems out of sync. It's almost like him and his receivers, and now there's no excuses. Because previously, I could listen to the excuse of, okay, Godwin's hurt. You've got Mike Evans out because of a suspension. Yeah. Cole Beasley came out of retirement for one yeah, game. Yeah, th- there was a period of time there where Julio wasn't on the field either. Now you've got your entire set- assortment of weapons out there. And that's what you looked like on Sunday? It's it's really strange, man. And I do wonder if in the back of Brady's mind, he's saying to himself, I came back for this? This is what I came back for? Yeah. He uh, he's I don't know about you guys, but he is giving me vibes of what Manning's last year looked like. Where it was like, it was the name on the back, had some weapons in Denver, but you just watched it and went, man, that is not the same Manning guy that I remember. broken, though. Like, Man- Manning looked And I don't bad. think it's not Brady looks broken. It's just the team looks broken around they, him. They look out of sorts. It, it kind of looks in, a, in are, a weird way like it did in New England at the end. Are we underestimating? Like it just yeah. doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Are we underestimating maybe how much better off the team was with Arians? I mean, it's possible. It's possible. Because, I mean, look, I, I was one on the side saying, like, this guy's got to go. It seems like there's issues. But, I mean, even last year, Tampa was still good offensively when Arians was there. So, I mean, I guess you got to start considering it now. Let's go to the other side of things. That was the bad. The Ravens, Bucks, Packers, those were all teams that were considered to be contenders coming into the season. And now, I, at a minimum, you got to kind of reel that in a little bit. How about the teams that I don't think anybody viewed as legitimate contenders coming into the season? And now we've at least got to have the conversation. The Patriots at three and three, the Jets at four and two and the Giants at five and one. Let me begin. We have a texture who has been saying to me on Twitter and he continues to do so on on the text line. He's a fan. BK, when are you going to give the Giants their respect? Yeah. Five and one. Big, big G up in New York. Preach, my man. Amen. I'll give him their respect. I think that the Giants are this year what the Titans were last year, which is a team that is really solid, well-coached, has a running back that is, I mean, Saquon Barkley has probably been the most dominant running back in the NFL this year. I think he's making a case for offensive player of the year. A defense that, again, is well-coached. I love what uh, what Wink has done with them. They're limited. I'm not picking that team in a playoff game. But what they have done so far this season is super impressive. So I will give you full credit, just as I did to the Titans last year, where I think they're going to continue winning their upcoming schedule. Jacksonville, Seattle, Houston, Detroit, Dallas, Washington. I think they could go at a minimum five and one in those games. And you're talking about 10 and two by week 12. But yeah, you're still doubting them. Yeah, this this felt like the teacher just giving you the sticker for showing up and trying. I mean, that's kind of what they're doing, right? They're showing up playing playing competent, well-coached football, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. The Patriots for years did a lot of this, except the difference was they had Tom Brady. They've got Daniel Jones. Okay, let me try. Daniel Danny Dimes. Let me try and and get into your head here for a minute, which is a dangerous spot. Do you think that I'm too far down on this team? A little bit, but I understand why you're feeling that way because of their quarterback. Can you name their best wide receiver? 
doesn't matter. They got Saquon Barkley. Saquon Barkley. Yeah. Saquon Barkley is their best receiver. Probably their best quarterback, do, too. Do you know who their leading receiver is? I will give you five guesses. Their leading receiver is who on the season? Uh, Sterling would, Shepard. Nope. No, it's Sills or nope. Billinger. Nope. Man, I thought I had there. Who the hell is it? Is it the dude that got his, uh, his rear end rubbed on camera? Might have been. I don't know who. I don't remember who that was that was, that was on camera. Was, that was Tony, wasn't was, he? He only nope, played one him. game. I thought that was a defender. I have no, I have no idea. Richie James. That was Richie my next James. Guess. Rick James is their leading receiver. He's with, a super freak, guys. We have Who the played. That? They have played six games. He leads them with 189 oh, oh. receiving yards. Okay, but but here's they where they're limited, and that's okay. We can Wait, admit how it. many yards did you say? 189. Oh, yeah, that's I'm a not really so good game. Know. But they're for Cooper Cup. But their defense is in six. Their <laughs> defense the has been the reason why you start believing a little bit more in them because they found ways to eliminate other teams' offenses. I mean, I understand Look Lamar. Look at the offenses they're going up against. I'm, he just shut down Lamar. Who's who's their leading receiver? Doesn't matter. Devin Lamar fumbled the ball twice. Yeah. Someone's a little two nervous. points offensively this week in Daily Fantasy. Hey, I, I'm not sitting here saying they're going to win the Super Bowl because that's just that's insane to say. But at least the couple of games that I've seen with the Giants, they, I mean, they're good. They could, they're good. They could be an upset at least in the first round of a playoff game. Yeah, but... It, that's better than what they've been. They've been awful for the last 15 years. I'm giving them credit. I forgot there's a football team out there. I, I'm giving the Giants, I think, the proper amount of credit. They are probably going to finish the season with like 12 wins, and they will get into the playoffs, and all of us will be super excited about against them. Who goes the farthest in the playoffs of these three that we're talking about? Patriots, Jets, or Giants? None. None of the above. I'd say Giants. None of them are real contenders. It, they're all really nice storylines. They are all extremely well coached. I will give them their credit where it is due. Now, the Jets are interesting offensively. I don't trust that quarterback. I don't trust him one bit. But the rest Zach of that offense, not trust. they're really interesting. Brees Hall's a stud, man. That, He's really That good. kid can play. And they've got weapons on the outside. So you want to talk about a my, team? Put him in my lineup this week. I, I am more interested them. in the Jets this year than I am in the Giants. I think the Giants are better, are, are more well-coached, though. And I think long-term, they have a better future. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah. I, I think that's fair. And, and that question I asked, I think the Giants would be the team that I would say would go further. Because, like, I could see them ending up getting a win in the first round. I don't know if because the NFC is so weak. The Jets may sneak in, but they may sneak in and then run into the two seed, the Chiefs, it looks like. And then they could be knocked out. And then I'm not sold on the Patriots. I don't think the Patriots are still a football team. Like, Zap was fun, but it's not going to last much longer. Their He's defense not play is good. As soon as Jones is healthy. I know. Their defense is good. I still don't trust their offense enough to go and win them games. But uh, to be fair, I don't know if I truly trust the Jets or Giants fully enough to say, okay, they can go on a drive and win a football game. Do you guys trust any of these teams? Any of them. Any would, of the three. I could trust all three of them to at least pull an upset off. Here's a better way to put it. Ravens, Bucks, Packers, Patriots, Jets, Giants. Which one goes the furthest in the playoffs out of those six teams that I just gave you? Well, I'd like to believe the Ravens. <laughs> I was going to say three of the six. I don't even know if we're going to make the playoffs. Exactly. Yeah, Packers, Yeah, but I'm Bucks not talking the three that you think. Patriots. I was going to say, I'm talking Packers, Bucks, and Ravens. Minutes, <laughs> the Blues have a clear-cut top line right now, and it's maybe not the one you think it is. But coming up next, 65780 is your covered service X side for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. We're Alex Ferrario 
I'm Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, the Blues have already developed a top line. It ain't the one we thought it was going to be, though. We'll talk. Well, maybe Alex didn't think it was going to be. Me. No, Achari. Achari. Yeah. We'll do that coming up in Who's about 10 him? minutes. But right now, let's get into Bit some like, questions and answers. Like. 65780 is your comfort service. Excellent like from the 636. Man. Powering through here. Guys, do you think that Harrison Bader meant more to the Cardinals oh. than we knew? And now we ended up actually losing the trade by sending him to New York for Jordan Montgomery. I, Montgomery pitched I, in the playoffs, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, he got through. What, what do you what, what am I supposed to say here? Like, yeah, Harrison Bader's really good. He was not healthy, and they needed a starting pitcher. It was a trade that worked out for both teams. It's rare that you get a situation like this, but I think both teams won. Both teams got what they needed out of that deal. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, it's great to see Harrison Bader have success there, and it was great having him here, but... He obviously wasn't the answer to the Cardinals problems because he's played in the postseason for them multiple seasons and couldn't get past the wild card round. So they needed starting pitching and like let's let's not be They did so- go to the NLCS in 2019. I'm just gonna throw it. Wasn't up to it wasn't to what were his stats in that? Doesn't matter. He was yeah, okay. He was part of that no hitter against Anibal Sanchez. That's what I thought. Uh let, like let's let's pump the brakes before we sit here and say it's a loss because you're gonna have one full season with Jordan Montgomery, who I think legit is probably your second or third best pitcher going into this upcoming season. Bader hit three, uh, 167 that year. Winning Ooh. player. Uh, but I agree. I agree. With 230 on base. Winning <laughs> bench man, man, player. You're right. We really won this trade. Uh, but no, Wolf. I agree. I think both teams won the trade for this year. I, I think if you're projecting forward and look, it, of course, it's a bigger story now because Bader's having postseason success. But I think if you're projecting forward into next year, I think the Cardinals will end up winning the trade. I, I Harrison Bader will be a good player for the Yankees, but I think Montgomery is going to be better for the Cardinals next year than what Bader will be for the Yankees. So I, I think it's going to equal out. In fact, I think it's still going to lean in favor of the Cardinals by the time that this trade's One said and done. 67. 65780 is the air comfort so service X line from the 314. This one's for Alex. Alex, what happens when Logan Brown comes back? Who do you think ends up leaving the lineup? My guess now would be Nathan Walker and they would probably bump Barbashev down to the fourth line and put Brown on the third line, or Brown would be on the fourth line just to get some feet wet because you're not going to play him very much. But Nathan Walker is the interesting one because I like Nathan Walker's game, but I also, for how involved Torpchenko and Achari are, I wonder if they're looking at that and saying, maybe we want another bigger player on that fourth line for us. So that's at least how I would look at it. If Brown, when he's available, which... Ruby said Saturday, it really is a day-to-day thing. It's just a matter of him healing, which is time more than anything. So I would probably put him in the third line and then bump Barbashev down and Walker be out. From the 314, any chance that the Cardinals trade for Sean Murphy, the catcher from the A's? We'll talk about this a little bit more expansively coming up at 1230. I I think it's small. BK wants it. I, I think it's slim because he has a lot of value. There's a lot of teams that need a catcher that can hit. He's got multiple years of club control left, and that means that he's going to be expensive in terms of what you'd have to give up to acquire him. So I do not think he is the likely scenario for the Cardinals at catcher. I agree. I I think he's going to be too expensive for the Cardinals liking. And when you look at, do you give up assets like top 100 prospects for a guy like Sean Murphy, who you have under some club control, or you just look for a stopgap and Tucker Barnhart and go like one year deal and do that. I I think it's more likely that 
the Cardinals would do that. I think they'd rather go to the free agent market, get a guy that's kind of a stopgap, see where Herrera is next year. If Herrera is still not ready, what do you do? You can go right back to the free agent market and get another stopgap catcher. You know what worries me? What worries me is they're going to say, let's go Kisner and Herrera next year and spend elsewhere, see how they are, and then if both of those guys don't seem like the the catcher we need, then we'll go to the market. A little bit of news to announce from Illinois. You see their game time has been officially announced for the Illinois versus Nebraska game. Prime time? It is 2.30 on ESPN no, or ABC. I don't think you understand what prime time yeah, is. For college football, that's one of the main spots that you want to be in uh, okay. with that ABC or ESPN slot. Can I, so, can I be honest? I'd rather have 6.30. Yeah, it's, it's at Nebraska. So. Hell, put that game at 10.30. I mean, it's at I can't stay up that yeah, late. I, mean, I look, I, I get it. Illinois is really good, and I love it. Nebraska, <laughs> yeah, they stink. Uh, looking forward though to talking about Illinois coming up here in about fifteen minutes or so because they have earned it after what they did over the weekend. Coming up in fifteen minutes, we'll give you our football pick'em reveal. Lose this week, one of us. Well, somebody lost that. Went three and zero this week. <laughs> Two of us did not. We'll tell you who came out on top, who did not. Coming up at 12.15. But next, there. we have an update on the Ryan O'Reilly contract negotiations here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Circle to Butchnevich, he scores! Pavel Butchnevich, a one-timer slapper from the near circle for the first of the year for St. Louis. That's what it sounded like right here on 101 ESPN, your home for the Blues, as the Blues won the battle of the Blue, for the Blue, really. Supremacy. On Saturday night, the Blues versus the Blue Jackets, 5-2, to two, and that was your top line. Robert Thomas, Pavel Buchnevich, Vladimir Tarasenko, they were getting it done there on the power play, but they got it done at 5-on-5 five five as well. And Alex, on Saturday night, something that really jumped off the stat sheet to me, and I know you mentioned this as well, Pavel Buchnevich, 18 minutes on the ice on Saturday night. You look at what Robert Thomas did, 19 and a half minutes on the ice. Alex, that's your top line right now. You look at them compared to, for example, Ryan O'Reilly. O'Reilly finished the game with a total of 1542 on the ice. Robert Thomas at even strength played more than 16 minutes on the ice. Has this happened quicker than we expected where Robert Thomas, the first drop of the puck was the number one centerman for the Blues? Uh, no, because I think coming into the season, you knew what the number one line was. Now, I'm surprised just in terms of ice time when it comes to him playing that much more than Ryan O'Reilly. But I also think when you have that dominant of a line, you're getting that line out there as much as possible in the offensive zone faceoffs. Now, I don't know what the defensive zone faceoffs to offensive zone faceoff ratio was, but the time spent in the O-zone, it was dedicated towards Robert Thomas, Vladimir Tarasenko, Pavel Buchnevich. And then also, and I know you just mentioned the even strength ice time, but that's the other significant piece to this. The number one power play unit, which I designate to who Tory Krug is quarterbacking that power play, is Thomas Tarasenko and Buchnevich. So Ryan O'Reilly is getting second power play unit time also, which is going to affect that power play and affect the time on ice. I didn't expect it to be that quick of a transition, but I just believe that 
Craig Berube knows that could potentially be one of the best lines in hockey offensively. So we're going to have them on the ice as much as possible. And I think when you when you consider who you want Ryan O'Reilly to be going up against, his ice time is going to climb when you're going up against other teams' supreme number one lines. I think this one was just a matter of they felt that they had the advantage with no line A. For what it's worth, you asked about the the platooning and offensive zone yeah. versus defensive zone starts. They were the exact same. 54 50, uh, to 46 offensive zone yeah. starts to defensive zone starts for yeah. both of them. I, I do think that you take that in consideration also. Like if Patrick Line was playing in that game, I, I wonder if maybe Ryan O'Reilly going up against it, but Let's be honest. Jordan Cairo. I was about to say, I'm not sure that that has a better defensive prowess than the line with Robert Thomas because Buchnevich is an excellent defensive player. Which is why it's so not confusing because I feel like that's too negative of a term, but it's it's so surprising that that's the pairings they're going with because you want Ryan O'Reilly out there against that other team's top line. Maybe it's not going to be that way this season. Maybe Thomas will switch that by the time we get to the playoffs. And the reason why I ask it that way is because. I wonder if they're trying to take more of a load off of Ryan O'Reilly during the regular season, or it's kind of like if you've got a legit ace, but he's getting up there in age, sometimes teams will back off of them a little bit in the regular season. So you might not see them going to like 120 pitches. Like the Dodgers kind of handled Clayton Kershaw this year where they knew like he's getting up there a little bit. He's still got these back issues that will kind of come to the the forefront from time to time. Uh, Let's ease him in here. Let's not go too far in the direction of leaning on Clayton Kershaw in the regular season. We got other guys that can handle some of that workload. I wonder if the Blues are starting to do that, where they say, hey, in the playoffs, we know Ryan O'Reilly, when necessary, he's going up against McDavid. He's going up against uh, Drysidle. He's going up against um, the the best of the best that you're going to go up against. But for the regular season, maybe that does go a little bit more on Robert Thomas, and they see what he can do. For what it's worth to that point, since he arrived in St. Louis in terms of average time on ice per game Ryan O'Reilly has the most among any forward at 20 minutes and 15 seconds the next closest time on ice average per game is Braden Shen at 18.29 so since 2018-19 I mean Ryan O'Reilly has logged as much minutes per game as Justin Falk, Tori Krug, and Colton Pareko so I mean they're skating him like a top defenseman which tells you yeah maybe that is a way that we go about it, at least in the early portion. We know we're going to get plenty of ice time, but how are you going to do that if you want Jordan Cairo to be a 40-goal scorer? That's that's the other predicament that you're in. But you're still getting him, not, like, even, I don't remember what the exact number was for um, for Cairo in that game, 17-18. That would have been one of you're his best games last year in yeah. terms of time on ice. So you're getting him more time than he did previously. Yeah, and, and I, that was my first thought was, I wondered if this was partially just kind of a quote-unquote load management, which I know people hate to hear. But I I did wonder if that was part of it with Ryan O'Reilly, and I think you build up to that as things go along because I I agree, just 15 minutes just feels kind of bizarre. And though I agree that the Thomas line is ultimately going to end up being, and I think already is, the best line for the St. Louis Blues, I don't think you limit O'Reilly. And it could just be one of those where, I mean, let's just be honest, watching that Columbus Blue Jackets team already 0-3 in the season, maybe you save O'Reilly for the bigger games that you're talking about, Alex, where it's like when you're playing Colorado, O'Reilly's going to get more ice. And when you play Nashville, O'Reilly's going to get more ice time. And then you kind of slowly build it up as the season goes along. And I, I think that's part of the plan for the Blues. And in terms of also, his ice time, I wonder if part of it is because, like, Cairo. Cairo, not very well defensively. I still didn't see any defensive adjustments up there. And I think also part of it, too, is you mentioned it in our first segment, Alex. 
that line did look a little off. Maybe the chemistry is still not fully there. And I know some would say, well, the Blues should just work that out by getting them more ice time. Well, maybe as the game got closer along that third period, Bruby saw that and went, okay, they're still not clicking yet. Let's turn more towards that Thomas line, turn to our third line, turn to our fourth line. It's interesting, Alex, you mentioned the time on ice. Ryan O'Reilly, since the start of the 2018 season, instead of going by average time on ice, just the total, the Mm -hmm. number of minutes that he has played. He's played 5,800 minutes. Braden Chen, as you mentioned, is second on the Blues in time on ice since the start of that season when Ryan O'Reilly got here to St. Louis. Again, Ryan O'Reilly's at 5,800 minutes. Where would you guess Braden Chen's at? Didn't you just say he was second? Yeah, but how many minutes? Oh. 5,800 for Ryan O'Reilly. How many minutes do you think that Braden Chen has played? Say 4,700. I was going to say 48, about 1,000. 4,800. 1,000 minutes fewer, about 25% less is what Braden Shin has played compared to Ryan O'Reilly. For what it's worth, David Perron's at 4,400 minutes. They play on the same line together. So this tells you, and some of that is injury-related for sure, he's played 30 fewer games than O'Reilly, but also it's the penalty kill. Like, he's out there playing the hardest minutes for your team. Ivan Barbashev is fourth since then, playing 3,700 minutes. He's played 2,000 minutes fewer than Ryan O'Reilly. Man, his workload is top six in the NHL since he got to St. Louis in terms of how many minutes he has played. We talk about this in basketball all the time, Tanner. You know this as an NBA fan. Like That that minutes load, it starts to build up over time. And so I wonder if what they're saying is, hey, we'll get a better version of Ryan O'Reilly when we need it the most. If we take back his workload, we decrease that a little bit in the regular season now that we have somebody that's capable of taking on such a workload. Well, and look at the postseason, how Ryan O'Reilly played. I mean, he was one of the dominant factors in that Minnesota Wild Series. The other factor, too, with O'Reilly that's really interesting is the penalty kill. They only had, what was it, two two penalty kills in that game against Columbus Saturday. I don't know. I think he probably like a minute and a half or something like that on the shorthanded time. 18 seconds. He he only played 18 seconds. Mm -hmm. He was not, I mean, he was not out there, obviously, but like Nola Chari's playing your penalty kill. Alexi Torpchenko's playing your penalty kill. Walker was there for about a minute 25, I think. Barbashev and Nola Chari. Like, you're not even using guys in your top nine playing on the penalty kill with the exception of Ivan Barbashev. That's huge. That's what Craig Berube has been wanting from the fourth line. If you've got three guys on the fourth line that can play the penalty kill for you and throw in a couple of others, you're not using Ryan O'Reilly or Pavel Buchnevich, although you still want to get him out there because he's so good. And I bet you in the playoffs, like O'Reilly will be out there killing penalties because like, he's so damn good at it. That's the thing. I, I mean, to think that you're not wasting this amount of time on Ryan O'Reilly so that you have the fresher version of him against those top opponents, that might be massive for this team. So speaking of O'Reilly, we've talked a lot about him here, and we do have a bit of an update on his contract negotiations. This comes from Pierre Lebrun. He reported this earlier today on The Athletic, so full kudos to Lebrun for getting this update. said, quote, It sounds like the plan for the Blues and Ryan O'Reilly's camp is to circle back with one another in January. The Blues captain is a pending UFA starting on July 1. Uh, He turns 32 in February and has a $7.5 million cap hit. So the update there is, uh, we're going to talk about this in January. Alex, I don't think a deal is getting done this regular season. We've seen the way that the Blues have operated in the past. When they get extensions done in the regular season, it's typically around now. Like I think this is around the time when they got the Braden Shin deal done. Uh, they did the trade in season and then got the deal done with Justin Falk early in the year. 
Am I missing very like any others that immediately come to mind to you that were in season? So don't they extensions? typically? And they haven't been long term ones, but they have done a couple where they're on the kind of what is it like the week off every now and then they announce a couple of those. Robert Portuzo is one of those couple years. Robert Portuzo is the one, and he signed yeah, a two year deal. Carl Gunnarsson before obviously he retired, he signed mid season trade. He got that yeah. one done. Jay I think Bo- that was during the break. Jay Bomeister got a one year extension. It was. It was the year prior to them winning the Stanley Cup, and I think he signed that like towards the end of the regular season before the playoffs began. So they've done it, but typically when you get those in-season contract extensions, the conversations have been happening, and it's just a matter of, a matter of okay, like are we still on the same page? Yeah, we want to get this done. Now maybe you get to the point where O'Reilly plays a couple of months, and maybe this is Doug Armstrong's play here. Play a couple of months, realize that you love being here, you're the captain, the team's successful, you see how good this team is, and O'Reilly says, you know what, I think I just want to be here, so let's negotiate where we were at and try and make it more applicable to me. One that I didn't mention is uh, the Jordan Bennington deal. That was in March. So if the if you are somebody that believes that the Blues will get an extension with Ryan O'Reilly done in season, it probably is that that path where they they have had the conversations that you're talking about, Alex. We know that the two sides have certainly talked at a minimum. If they continue talking starting in January, maybe they're able to get something done. My guess, though, is this is something that goes into the offseason. And then we'll see. We'll we'll see where it goes. And I do wonder what this regular season is going to mean. If they continue going down the path, it's one game. Somebody on the text line mentioned this. Guys, don't overreact. It's one game. Don't make more of this than needs to be. I understand that. That's totally fair. But if it continues heading in this direction, and I have a feeling it probably will, where your top guy in terms of time on ice is going to be Robert Thomas, and then down a little bit further is Ryan O'Reilly. In that first game, Thomas, Booch, Kairou, Tarasenko, Barbashev all played more minutes in total than Ryan O'Reilly did. That's not something you ever saw, really, last year. You saw it in the first game of the regular season this year. I wonder what that'll play into the negotiations. If they say, hey, O'Reilly, we think this is the best way to utilize you. We we have your best interest in mind as well as ours. Let's get something that works for both sides here. We know that you like it here. Obviously, we like having you here. Come be our number two center for the next four years or whatever. Uh, that's that's something that would make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's, I actually think this is going to get done still. I'm, I'm on the same campus as Rutherford saying, like, I think this is going to get done because you just know how impactful he is to this team. But getting it done in January, that does seem like a little bit of a stretch. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, how much do the playoff upsets are? How much are they a result directly of this new format? Tanner's going to yell at the clouds. I'm going to discuss why this has been one of the most enjoyable playoffs that we've seen in recent years. We'll do that coming up in 15 minutes. But coming up next, time for our football pick reveal. One of us went 3-0. The other two did not. Who lost this week? We'll tell you next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Count that, that big bang. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It was a good week for all of us in the football pick'em. I was two and zero after Saturday. It felt wonderful. Me too. One and zero after Saturday. Well, that's Dang. not two and zero, man. Two and zero early. Those uh, those Wolverines, baby. They know and, how to uh, get the they know how to get the job done. I was pretty happy with my not only against the spread pick, which I bet over on the FanDuel Sportsbook when we were in Illinois, but also the money line pick. 
of Tennessee Volunteers being able to take down Alabama. I thoroughly enjoyed one of my pickums being Illinois because I knew in the back of my mind Tanner's rooting against Illinois. By the way, if you were somebody that watched, thanks, buddy. You thought you wanted me to win, huh? Yeah. If you were somebody that watched that Tennessee game on Saturday and said to yourself, man, that looks like a cool place to go to a game. The best place I've ever attended a football game is in Knoxville, Tennessee. Shots fired, Columbia, Missouri. Yeah, Neyland Stadium, dude, is unlike anything you'll ever experience. It, it is incredible. Yeah. So if you have an opportunity to go to an SEC game at some point over the next few years, do that one. Well, that is worth the trip. If you go there, you'll find the field goal pole in the water. Yeah, where, where, where? yeah go scuba diving. <laughs> Anybody go, uh, see it? <laughs> it's like the gingerbread man in Shrek 2. All right, let's get to our picks. You don't get that reference? Come on, man. Shrek's in your wheelhouse. You've never seen Shrek? I've seen the first. I don't remember the second one. Dude, they just got better after the first. All right. Let's start with Tanner Hendrickson. I'm siding with the Cowboys. Give me Oklahoma State, the college Cowboys. The Oklahoma State Cowboys plus four at TC. Oldest player in college football. It's Muff and free and recovered by Oklahoma State. I think the Jets win this game outright. Give me the Jets plus seven and a half at the Packers. Play inside. And a beauty. Paul running free. Brees Hall inside the 10. He's going to score. Touchdown, Jets. I'm going to take the Bills minus two and a half at the Kansas City Chiefs. I think they probably win by a field goal, but hey, that's what covers and good teams cover as we've learned. Here comes out. Getting wrong. Throws to the end zone. And the ball is caught. Of all people, it's Dawson Knox. T-Bone. Was there a moment, though? I, I'm disappointed he didn't grab. Remember, he asked his confidence in our picks, and I said seven. And I said he can grab it for the tape. T-Bone, I'm, I'm curious, though. When when Josh Allen threw that touchdown, and there was, what, like a minute, a minute 20 five. left? Were you a little nervous? No, because I thought that game was won when Allen leaped over the defender. That's an interesting take. Well, not being nervous, there was the wrong. I was going to say, Patrick Mahomes. I mean, I was having playoff flashbacks once again. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to go downfield and it's going to be over. They had 12 seconds left, lining up from their own 28, and somehow got into field goal range before the half. And you're telling me you had no fear whatsoever. They learned from last year's mistakes. They also had Tyreek Hill last season. By the way, I I parlayed my own picks together. Your boy won some dough over in Illinois. It was a good weekend. 20 bucks, another Ethernet cable, ladies and gentlemen. If you've been following T-Bone's picks, by the way, credit where it is due. If you've been following T-Bone's picks this year. Yeah, last week was rough. It's about the long run. You've had a really good season with your picks. It's I been super impressive. Two and one the now first you've been punished four twice. weeks, which is bizarre. <laughs> I went two and one the first four weeks, laid an egg two weeks ago when I went zero oh and three in week five, and then this week three and zero. Oh. <laughs> yeah, mine look a little different. I went three and zero, oh, one and two, one one and one, zero oh, two and one, one and two, and, and then when we, we get to this week, here are my picks from Friday. This has never burned me before. Don't look it up. Well, that's not true. I'm taking Tennessee plus the seven points at home against against Mm. Alabama. From 40. On the way, a knuckleball. He got it. And here they come. Guys, I'm going to take the Ravens as a five and a half point road favorite at the Giants. I do not believe in the Giants. I think what we have seen from them so far this year is fraudulent. The football. Scoops it back up. Checks and throws. Intercepted. Giants have it with Julian Love. Love weaving through, tackled inside the 15. I think the Seahawks not only cover the spread, but win the game outright, beat the Cardinals. The Cardinals once again proven to be frauds. Walker with some time for spot on there. Walker to the 10. From now on, I'm only uh, betting on underdogs. That's the only thing I'm doing. I seem to be pretty good at finding those spots. The favorites I'm not so good with. 
can I give you guys a stat real quick on the Ravens? Yes. Who yeah. lost? It's 0 and 9. That's what you went three weeks straight. The Dolphins. You remember that comeback against the Ravens? I won, money on, that. Yeah. I won money on that. I, that made me a happy man. That was the week that uh, I went 0 2 and 1. Yep. Ended up getting punished because of that one. And then this week, once again, the Ravens take a 10 point lead into the second half and not only find a way to not cover the spread, find a way to lose outright. The Ravens with a 10 point lead in the second half from the moment Lamar Jackson took over until the end of last season. You guys know what the record was in those scenarios? 10 point lead at any point or going Undefeated. into the second half. 31 and 2. Oh, wow. 31 and 2. Oh, 31 and 3 now. This year. Going into the second half, 10-point lead or more. Two and three. I have lost in the Pick'em Challenge in two of those three losses. I had the Ravens. You know, I was watching that game with my uh, one-and-a-half-year-old, and, and uh, I taught her to chant, BK stinks, BK stinks. It's a really cool thing. Nice. All right. We chant that now every uh, Alex, every weekend. let's hear your picks. As long as you didn't go two and one with a better point differential than me, or... 3-0, I'm good. Here we go. I'm going to back what I've been saying all along. I'm going to take the Cowboys plus six and a half. Rush throws. Intercepted by Slay. Mm. I'm going to go against every single thing that I have said that I uh, will do this season and not pick college football games. I'm going to take Michigan minus seven. To Edwards. Edwards fires. He's got a wide open man. Oh, it's caught. Robert Wilson. Touchdown, Michigan. I'm actually a little bit more confident than what I thought I was with this. I'm taking Illinois plus six and a half. Thanks to give to Brown. Now they got him on the wheel. Oh, oh, oh. Chase Brown down the sideline. What was that spread BK in that Cowboys game? Who came up with this idea? <laughs> well, three of us did actually. By the way, my Cowboys, I thought I actually had that there for a little bit. When they I made it too. a seven point, I'm like, okay, they're too. getting back in this. They had the ball in their I hands and and Cooper Rush decides to just throw duck, duck farts in the air 24-7. So Danny the Cowboys Dimes. were a six-and-a-half-point underdog. They lost by nine. That's that uh, means you 15? were minus two-and-a-half. Oh, okay. I like that. What were you, buddy? I had the Ravens by five-and-a-half. They were the favorite. <laughs> they lost by four. <laughs> That's minus nine-and-a-half. <laughs> there was a moment last night. Second place again. Midway through. The fourth quarter of that Eagles Cowboys game. When it was twenty, or well, no, I guess it wasn't twenty nothing at that point. Oh, after the first quarter, I put my phone down. I walked out of the room and I said, "I know I'm losing this week. I'm just hey, done." Started listening the to Michael Eagles Bolton were, in the dark room. The Eagles were up the at the half, twenty to three, and then Cooper Rush rushed his team back into play, and then he sucked again down the stretch and gave the Eagles every opportunity to be able to go in no, and man. do something. Play the something clock. Don't play the opponent. I forgot that the Eagles don't play in the second half. They did actually score a touchdown in the second half J- of this one. So there's Jaylen that. Hurts bobbled the ball six times in the second half. I went two and one and still find a way to get punished. So, man, fantastic news. There's for your me. reveal. Fantastic news. Tanner for me. Oh, I gotta put the tweet out. Alex two and one. What's I went punishment? two and one. I'm the guy that gets punished again, even though I'm gonna be out of town for the next two weeks. Also, oh, we're gonna have to do this quick then. Either quick or late. We'll no, figure we're it not out. waiting two weeks. What's the punish what's the new punishment? The three punishments that we have on the docket, you can vote on these at 101 ESPN on Twitter or on the 101 ESPN app. You sound like a loser, man. Come on. Stand on Olive with a costume and 
a sign that says I suck at picks. Option two, go to the football field, push the football sled the full length while Kerry Davis yells at you. Option three, I wonder where you guys are going to vote. I don't know, man. Read a page out of Fifty Shades of Grey. Are you going to yeah. wear like those old... old I'm not wearing it. Where are the handcuffs when you read it? If you don't no, I was gonna, I was That's actually say, a good idea. I was going to no, say, no, do, the, do like the old lady glasses. Wear those little small... Look, if, if I can make a suggestion to the listeners, and the listeners are wonderful, they do what they want to see, but... I want CBK standing on the side of the road. I, I don't want him to read. I want him to dress I up I really as want Pinocchio. Tanner Hendrickson to read Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Why is that, man? <laughs> you just got the voice for it. That's it's a compliment. If I had a suggestion, man, I want to. We've see, got the Pinocchio outfit picked out. I think he'd be perfect. I want to see BK holding a sign that says he sucks at picks because he genuinely does suck at the pick'em challenge. That makes true. sense. Pinocchio's the perfect. He sucks outfit more than him. anybody else does at this pick'em. Challenge. I don't know. You're pretty bad too. You're just lucky. <laughs> you haven't how lost many punishments yet. have I had? Somehow zero. Thank you. He's the guy that outruns the slowest person while running away from the bear. Yeah. He says, I was fast. I'm the one that survived. Just, just Do you the, have a, I guess you can't have a worst overall record since this guy went 0-9 for three straight weeks, but yeah, no. Tanner is, er, I've I, won every week. There hasn't been a week that I didn't win. Alex is the opposite of Ricky Bobby. If you ain't first, you're last. No, no, no. If you ain't last, you might as well be first in this challenge. <laughs> That's Alex's approach. Hey, <laughs> Just don't finish last. We can complain all we want, but I'm the one that has not had to take the bomb or wear a Snow White princess and outfit we'll, or run a beer mile. And we'll be doing my punishment. I saw someone text in earlier. When's Tanner serving his next punishment? Tomorrow. We are doing my punishment tomorrow. Oh. oh. The bomb. How wonderful. Tomorrow you want to spend five T-bones. seconds? Uh, talking about the Illini real quick. Oh, they can beat anybody. Michigan is going down in the big house in a couple weeks. I don't Ohio know, State going down in the Big Ten championship game. Chase Brown, let's get the guy the Heisman. Come on. He's been like the best player in the country. Huh. Minus C.J. Stroud maybe. But other than that, Illinois, I can't believe we're at this point. Hendon Hooker's got a lot to say about that as well. Yeah, um, he's okay. The Illini are 6-1. and one. They're a legit top 25 team nationally right now. Their upcoming schedule looks very advantageous at Nebraska, home against Michigan State and Purdue on the road at Michigan. That's going to be really tough. You're going to be a significant underdog in that one. And then on the road at Northwestern, that should be a game they win. The expectation at this point should be nine wins. That is the expectation for Illinois. The hope is you can get to at least 10. And if something wild happens against Michigan, and you end up winning 11 games, man, if you're an Illinois fan this year. You get a contract for life. First of all, yes. Second of all, this is a special season. This is the kind of season that Illini fans will remember forever. And also, this is the foundation of what Brett Bielema has sold to all of you guys. Like If, if you're an Illinois fan, he said when he came in, we're going to play good defense, we're going to run the football, and we're going to win a lot of games. And what have they done so far this year? They've played really good defense. They have run the ball as well as anybody nationally in the country. Uh, Right now, Chase Brown has the most rushing yards and most yards from scrimmage of any player individually in the country. And you're winning a whole heck of a lot of football games. I still don't understand what happened against Indiana. Uh, I will never understand. uh, That one really. Two offensive linemen didn't block. They didn't. They were at the one-yard line, and they couldn't punch it in. I... That game really stings the further and further we get along in this season because they'd be a top 15 team, maybe just outside the top 10 if they were undefeated right now and they were able to beat that Indiana team. That If they win that Purdue game, 
I think they're pretty much locked in as the Big Ten West champion, too, and got a shot at the Big Ten title game. This reminds me a lot of Mizzou's 2014 season. Mizzou lost, interestingly enough, at home against Indiana in week four that year. They got destroyed by Georgia, which could be similar in terms of what happens against Michigan. That's that's no shot against Illinois. Michigan's just very good, as we saw this weekend. And then they won every other game during the regular season and lost against Alabama, but went to the Citrus Bowl, played against Minnesota. And Mizzou fans remember that incredibly fondly. Like that's one of the seasons you look back upon and say that's one of the better seasons for Mizzou in the last 20 years. That's that's what I think this year has the feel of for Illinois. And hopefully it becomes more of a harbinger of what's to come than what the 2014 season was, which is uh, this is the last the year of Mizzou <laughs> yeah. being good for the next decade. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll dive into the we junk drawer. Punter, so we're good. Hey, but my dad next, offered help if you need help on picks moving forward. I might need them. Coming up next, I'll let him do my picks this week when I'm out. How much of these playoff upsets are a direct result of the new playoff format? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. One strike away. Hater to Freeman. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. That audio courtesy of Fox Sports 1 as the Padres advance to the NLCS, where, yes, they will be facing off against the Philadelphia Phillies. Now, a lot of people are upset about this. Yeah, they're not a real playoff team. Understandably so. What an NLDS. Under the previous format, excluding the weird 2020 season where there were like half capacity crowds were playing in a neutral side. Throw that to the side. The play-in game winners went 9-9 against the top seeds in the division series. The 2014 World Series gave us two different wildcard teams that played against one another and the Giants against the Royals. So this has happened before where we just see weird random stuff happen in October. But, Tanner, I'm going to come to you on this. Yes, sir. How much of this specific outcome of the Phillies and the Padres advancing out of the best of five in LDS, how much of this is because of the new playoff format that we're watching this postseason? I don't think any of it's due to the new playoff format. Whoa! I thought I was going to be getting set. Well, the Phillies aren't a real playoff team because it should only be, you know, uh, five that and not would six. Be because but, of the new playoff format, then? Well, no, but I, I'm saying, like, I'm not buying into the notion that the top two teams that got the bye lost because they had time off. That's what I'm not buying into. Fair. It's fair that the Phillies aren't a playoff team, but that's another argument for another day, and I'm sure I'll lose that argument. Yeah, that you dumb know, playoff team money. sure gave uh, um, the Cardinals a run for their money. But I, I don't think it's because of those teams had time off and they got rusty, anything like that. Like, I look on paper of what those teams had pitching-wise, and their starting pitching staffs were breaking. And the Phillies, even though they came in and didn't win 90 games in the regular season, I think part of that was because they ran into the Mets and Braves, had to play them a lot in the regular season. But you look at that lineup, they have three solid bats, their pitching is healthy, and they're able to knock. They're able to advance to the NLCS. You look at San Diego; their pitching is healthy. They've got their big backs now starting to play. Juan Soto is actually starting to play better in San Diego. Machado has been really good so far this playoff run for them. But when I look at the Dodgers, you've got a team in which you had uh, 
who was it? Gonsolin. Gonsolin only went like an inning and a third. They didn't have him stretch out because he was coming off of the injured list. The bullpen was a bit of a mess coming into the playoffs, so that right there just equals a disaster to come. I think some of their best players didn't perform in that series. And then you look at the Braves, for example, and you've got Spencer Strider making his first start since September. I think it was like 17th or something crazy. So you've already come in and their pitching's dealing with something. Max Fried's getting over the flu, as Ken Rosenthal had in his article today on The Athletic. And you look at their bullpen. I can't Someone in their bullpen, I think, was just coming off the aisle as well. In their lineup, I think Swanson had two hits in that series. So, like, it's easy to look at and say, why did they lose? Because they had pitching concerns. Do I think that the Braves and the Dodgers were the better team in those series? Yeah, I do, but it's just like last year where I thought the Dodgers were the better team than the Braves, and the Braves ran into them at the right time. I think the Phillies ran into uh, Atlanta at the right time, and I also think San Diego ran into the Dodgers at the right time, and they move on to a best-of-seven series. And this is where this one becomes interesting because I think the better team on paper is San Diego, and I think because they are healthy, I think San Diego will win this series, and I think they'll win it in six. Yeah, the Dodgers made sense to me. Like I fully expected the Dodgers to lose that series because – I mean, that's a hell of a lot of baseball they've been playing over the last few seasons, and I do think the fatigue factor sets into play into something like that. The Phillies one is interesting, but, I mean, it's the it's the given example of you get hot at the right time and you become a dangerous team. And I understand the sentiment of, yeah, they got into the postseason by not being in the postseason because of the extra teams, but that's the new format. And if you're a team that plays, and it's not just they did – they got hot in the postseason. Like they were playing well down the stretch. At least their offense was, and their pitching with Wheeler and uh, Nola became factors. So I, I, I don't know how much of a product of the playoffs it is. Just as much as it's what you see every year in the postseason. A team gets hot, and they're going to go on a run like they did. Also, one thing that I'm going to push against is people suggesting that these are teams that are like, oh, they got lucky. They no, they that's stupid. The Padres have invested incredibly heavily into this team. Their payroll for this season is $240 million. The Philadelphia Phillies, nobody goes more all in than Dave Dombrowski. He does not care about your prospects. He does not care about your Baseball America rankings. He don't care about anything other than how many wins can I get with the team that is currently assembled and do they have a chance to win a World Series this year? He doesn't care about defense. He said this <laughs> offseason, who are the biggest bats that I can acquire? Because I think those guys are going to help me in the playoffs. Yeah, Went out Keith there, Hernandez hates watching them. You got Kyle Schwarber. You got Nick Castellanos. Paid him about $40 million per season over the next four years to be able to acquire those two individuals. And guess what? They are hitting their way through the postseason. So I, I, I will be very curious to see what the lesson is for front offices, because I think there are two different ways you can look at this. On one hand, it's what you guys were just mentioning, the randomness of playoff baseball. It exists. Anybody can win in any three or five game playoff series. I mean, you saw what was the stat this year about the Pirates against the Dodgers? The Pirates were like five and one or something like that. Yeah. Six and one. If that doesn't tell you what can happen in a short sample size, I don't know what can you look at what happened in these playoff series like it was the wrong time for the pitching for both of those two teams, the Dodgers and the Braves and the Padres and the Phillies were good enough to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. So that's part of it. The other part of it is these teams came into the season with massive expectations locally, nationally. Maybe people weren't as high on them, but in the Philly or the, the Padres came into the year thinking, all right. We got Tatis coming back at some point this year. We've got Machado. We're going to make a big play for maybe we want to get a big piece at the deadline. And they, of course, went out there and got Juan Soto. 
and they got Josh Hader, who have been huge pieces for them in the playoffs. The Phillies spent crazy amounts of money in the offseason. What's going to end up winning out for for organizations? Are they going to lean more into the, hey, you know, look, you can get hot at the right time. Anything can happen. You just got to get in. Or are they going to say, man, those teams were fourth and fifth in spending. They invested heavily, not only in the offseason, but then also at the trade deadline. They were both super aggressive. I wonder what's going to win out there as a result of what happened this postseason. I mean, it's always going to be the side that you can decide that you can capitalize on and it's just spending money. Now there are going to be plenty of teams that look at that and say, yeah, but we're not going about it that way. But the teams that are kind of in the middle or towards the top that can spend the money, I would imagine they're going to side more towards that direction. But see, so you I- think that teams lean into the spending money like their their default position is we should spend. No, more? I, I was just going to say none of these factor into how teams are going to go about it because the teams that are going to go about it are going to do it the way that it's always been done. And they're just going to sit there and say, yeah, but we got a talented farm system that we feel can be a part of it. And we're going to turn those pieces into assets at the trade deadline or in the offseason if we can trade them. I I think that the I think front office people like uh, Mo, for example, guys that are like Pobos, GMs, they'll say, oh, look, look, that's fourth and fifth in payroll. We need to raise our payroll. That's how I can build a better team. But I think owners will look at it and say, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Random. Random, they didn't win 90 games. <laughs> they didn't win 90 games. So I think overall, there might be some teams uh, that may lean into that. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like Boston may, nah, they're pretty cheap. Uh, no, I don't think any team will. I, I think most teams will look at it and say, that's just a fluke. Yeah, okay, they were four and five in payroll, but look at it. They got into the regular, they got in the postseason, got hot at the right time, and went on a run. I, I think most front offices, except for Yankees, Mets, Dodgers, maybe the Padres are in this category, I don't even really view Philly in this category, are going to look at and say, we just got to find a way to get in, and if we can get in, anything can happen. The Dodgers, Yankees, Mets, I think they'll spend like crazy to say, we have to really build pieces up by spending 200 million plus to go on a run in the playoffs. We can't rely on the hope that we get in and go on a run because of the pressure that's in their markets. Every other team outside those three, I think are going to go with the we just got to get hot. We just got to get into the playoffs, and then anything can happen. Is there any truth to the notion that like the, the teams that do still remain got pretty damn good front end starting pitchers? Like I, I do wonder if some of that is is fair to look at as well. As you look at these teams that are still left, like the Guardians are giving it a run for their money, or giving the Yankees a run for their money. Why? Because of the Guardians starting pitching, and really just their pitching in general. It's their starters, and then what they're able to bring out of the bullpen. It's these fire, fire-breathing dragons, uh, seemingly one after the other after the other. Everybody that's coming out of a bullpen, seemingly, in this postseason is throwing 99 or 100 miles per hour with crazy strikeout stuff. And then, oh, here comes the slider from hell that you're going to strike out on and on in this one-two count that you've got. I, I do wonder if the lesson to be learned for like the Cardinals, but I think the Dodgers fit into this too because they didn't have, by the end of the year, a real legit number one starter, in my opinion. I, I wonder if some of this is just like, hey, man, Go get yourself that dude that you can start in game one and he's going to give you a real chance. And you get into the NLCS, that dude is starting for you twice in that NLCS and he's going to give you a real chance there too. Is that a lesson that can be learned, whether it's locally or nationally, but I think more locally is what we talk about here. Do you think that matters for the Cardinals? I think so. I I think when you look at the teams that have advanced, that you look at 
Philadelphia. I'm not even sure if it's just one. I think it's like two legitimate guys. Like Zach Wheeler's a dude. Aaron Could you Nola. argue that Michaelis is there though? Or no? I but I would argue that Urias is there for the Dodgers. Maybe as a two. Maybe not so much that. The reason one. why I bring up Michaelis is because if you do need two, maybe the Cardinals are missing that's the one fair. other. Or maybe you argue Flaherty if you bet yeah, on a healthy yeah, they're season. Probably for Flaherty. Flaherty's so yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think they would go if we're saying Michaelis that guy. They're probably going into the year going if Flaherty's healthy. We've got our one-two mm-hmm. combo. Uh, but I I think it is a theme. I think you, a, you got to have a. I've always said this. I think you need four legitimate arms out of your bullpen. But I think a top two. We always talked about three three. Four, three big bats, three big starters, and four big bullpen arms. Maybe it's just two legitimate top-end starters, and then you can kind of piece it together the rest of the way. Because Nola, Wheeler, those guys are dudes. Musgrove, Snell, and Darvish, Darvish thank you, are three legitimate guys for that San Diego rotation. And then you look out west, I mean, Houston's got like five legitimate starters that they can throw out in their rotation. So I think it is a lesson to be learned. I think you have to have solid starting pitching, and you're looking at some of these games like Garrett Cole was awesome last night. Mm-hmm. Get, getting, I think he went six innings, if I remember correctly, just to give his team a chance. So, yeah, I, I think it is a lesson to learn nationally and just here on the local level as well. I think the bats are also important, but I do believe that the starting pitching and having that guy – seems to be effective because every year you're always talking about the team and well man they have that ace and you wish you had that ace but at least looking on the national league side and i understand the pitching was phenomenal but you also do still have those bats which is something that i just feel like the cardinals lack every season once you get into postseason play musgrove and darvish have combined for 25 innings in the playoffs with six earned runs allowed for the phillies nola and wheeler have combined for 25 innings as well three earned runs these guys are eating innings for you. The other thing that that allows you to do in the playoffs when you have dudes, and I'm talking guys that when Ollie Marmol is taking them out in the sixth inning, I'm with all of you old school people by saying this is the wrong decision. When you have Wheeler, Darvish, Musgrove, that that's when we're talking about, okay, this guy's going to go seven innings. Okay, we, we trust him to get deep into the ball game. If you've got that guy, it allows your the middle innings relievers to rest for the next day. And when you have your number three or number four starters going out there giving you four, you can cover those innings a little bit easier because your guy hasn't thrown each of the last two days as well that's going to be coming in to cover those middle innings. So I think I think there's a little credence to that as well. I'll be curious to see what the Cardinals end up kind of learning from this postseason run because there's there's a lot of interesting trends that are taking place right now in Major League Baseball. One of them is the number of pitchers that are going deep into games. It is already more than it was the entirety of last year's postseason. That's a wild thing to do. And I wonder how much of that is the travel this year versus the format versus just better starters that have gone out there coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Is this going to be the answer for the Cardinals catching question? There is a couple of guys that Tanner's going to throw our way. We'll give you our answers on those coming up in 15 minutes. Alex has a junk drawer story for us next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve it. Checking account today. Junk 
drunker, Alex Ferrario? What do you have for us All today? right, let's hope I don't have another uh, snafu like I did the last time I did the junk drawer. I read this article this time, guys, I promise. And it's a list, and we all love lists here on the junk drawer. Are you both into horror films, scary no. movies? No. You guys don't watch any of them? What kind of films? Horror films. Big fan. You Big fan. That's on Cinemax, and I've you shouldn't have that channel. All of them. You yeah. were way too young for that. I'm out. I you mean, don't watch any of them? No. All of them. I get them primarily. I primarily stream them. Man. Too scared. Man, scary films. That's what I'm going at. So apparently. Hey man, whatever you're into, that's on you. <laughs> so apparently, well, I guess those could be scary also, depending on what you're watching. I'm out on so, those. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't be out on those, man. Those are great. So apparently science is involved with the fear factor into these films now. Okay. So a scientist monitored and measured the resting and average heart rates of individuals while watching these films. I got the top 20 scariest films of all time. Ooh, that's a good question. Okay. So, obviously it's going to be difficult to go with all 20. So, I'm going to I'm going to have you guys name the Let's top do like top 5. Uh, yeah, I was going to say you want to do top 5 here. So, top 5 of the scariest films measured by heartbeat resting and raising throughout the film. I would assume The Exorcist is probably up there. Exorcist is probably up there. So Exorcist is not in the top five. Now, I'll say all five of the ones in the top five are... Are they old or newer? These are newer ones. Okay. Okay. It, is it up there? I wouldn't I don't think know. so. I don't no. think it, got, it Where was it's it? It's more it thrilling. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, as, it wasn't as creepy. as um, so, so here, paranormal? just to give you an idea of the ones on here, I'll give you 20 through six. So 20 is Scream okay. with Nev That's Campbell, Courtney Cox. It was 19. Okay. Apparently, the difference in uh, resting beats per minute and the movie beats per minute was only 10%, which I call BS on, but I'm afraid of clouds. So 18 was Hush. It's a movie on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have seen that before. The Exorcist was 17th, which also should not be that low. 28 Days Later was 16th. Texas Chainsaw, 15th. Halloween, 14th. Nightmare on Elm Street, 13th. So those are a majority of the older films. Quiet Place was 12th. The Ring was 11th. Oh, I, I was going to ha- have that the in Ring? Top five. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Visit, which scared the bejesus out of me. Never That's of with it. M. Night Shyamalan, where these kids go visit their grandparents that are like, it's messed oh, up. Oh, I got a guess for top five. Okay, well, hold on. I'm, I'm still going through the rest. Sorry, so the I, Descent I was ninth. In. I don't know the name of it. The Babadook, which I have not seen, is eighth. Conjuring 2, seventh. Oh, it Follows is sixth. So that is six through 20. What what's that movie? Uh, Get out in this. Get out is not on this. No. Oh, is that the one where he goes to the? That's the one I think I was thinking of. What's yeah. that actor's name in it? I don't know the actor, but Jordan Peele's the director. Jordan Peele, that's yeah. Who I was he was the director of, of it. Was, I'm shocked that's not in there. That yeah. was the one I was thinking. Are any Jordan Peele films on this? No. So, Us. nope. No, no Jordan Peele films. So one of these was like. It, it remember they they promoted this film as like the scariest thing you'll ever see in person. That's every movie. and it was kind of boring. If that helps at all, it was like paranormal activity. Paranormal activity was. No, fifth. I said that one. You didn't answer. Oh, you did? Yeah, I, I said didn't paranormal hear you say that. Sorry, I don't listen to Seventeen percent difference on on uh, beats per minute and resting and Texas watching Chainsaw the film. Massacre. That was earlier. Thanks for listening. What, wh- what was the one? Um... <laughs> if the one's that low, I don't think two's going to be up that higher. <laughs> Are any of the Halloweens on this? No. What no was, what just were, the one Halloween. What were those? Gosh, I can't I'll even... give you four because I don't think you're going to get four because I've never seen it. Hereditary? Mm-hmm. I've never seen that. Apparently Wait, it's another project? No. I told, well, I told that, my wife I'm not allowed. Like, she likes the name Blair. I said we can't no. name our daughter Blair. <laughs> Man, that movie creeped me out. I saw that when I was nine. Whoa, game over. So you need one, two, and three. What are those movies where, like, 
there's just I'm going to say bizarre deaths, but that doesn't really help. Final fa- uh, destination? Yeah, final yeah, destination. Yeah, no, those aren't up here. Okay. No, these are like there's the one jump of them scare films. That, uh, they, on a roller coaster? The, the roller coaster's one. The one where they ended up getting uh, burnt inside of the- The movie theater? The, no, the- um, Oh, the, the tanning, tanning salon. Yeah. BK does a lot of GTL, gym tan laundry. I don't know how anybody could ever go back into a-, a all right, you guys suck at this list. So The Conjuring is number three. I thought you already oh, mentioned that. That was the second one. The first one is number three. 20%. No, Texas Chainsaw Massacre isn't on here. I already said it. Texas Can't Chainsaw wasn't twice. scary anyway. Insidious was number two. What's that one? Uh, that one is a James Wan film. I don't know that one. And then Sinister is number one. 32% difference. That is a bad list. Well, wow. That's because you guys don't like horror films. You like the other kind. Always bad list. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll play a game of in or out. Six five seven eight. was the air Jerks. comfort service tax line. At least I read the article scenario, this time. You tell us. I it. listened to Christmas music yesterday. <laughs> oh, my God. You totally did. I'm in the mood. <laughs> I saw an Old Navy commercial, and they were promoting Christmas. So it's, it's starting, man. Tis the season to be jolly. Yeah. You guys ready for me to do the tease yet or no? Nah. You want to do a list again, T-Bone? Come up with another one. Yeah. Okay. Tanner, why don't you tease the next segment? Hey, we're talking blues and their clear-cut top. Oh, that's 12 o'clock. Never mind. <laughs> Sorry, that's the wrong one. Hey, we got a catching question here in St. Louis. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Tanner was the one that teased us coming into this break. Said we got catching questions here. Tanner apparently has some answers. Tanner, what are your answers that you have for us? All right, guys. What do you think about uh, Sean Murphy of the Oakland Athletics? Big fan. Yeah? Yep. Would like to have him here in St. Louis. Now, what if I said that it was going to cost you, like, Nolan Gorman and then one of, like, Tinkins, Yvonne Herrera, Gordon Graceffo, someone like that? Or maybe Tink Henson, Matthew Libertor, and Nolan Gorman for Sean Murphy? Are you in? No. Who's smacking that button? No, I'm not giving up what could be a potential ace for us. Tink Hens. Oh, I thought you were talking about Libertor. No, 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 no. <laughs> that ship has sailed, sir. If you could do that trade okay, by taking Tink if you could take Tink Hens or Graceffo's name off of that list, I would consider it. You can't. Well, then I don't think you're going to want. Uh, oh, so here, you can't. Here's the thing about Sean Murphy. Fair. Sorry, BK. Sean Murphy is a very good catcher. He is 27 years old. He has a few years of service time so far. In the last couple of years, since being close to a full-time player, he's had 35 home runs, and he's hit not a great average, but he's like a 235, 240 guy, and most of his value comes from his slugging percentage. I don't think what you're going to get from him offensively is enough to warrant that kind of a return. If I'm giving up that kind of value, I I would rather go out there and get myself a really good outfielder or somebody that I think can help me on the infield or maybe another catcher that's available out there. Or but a legit number one ace. Something like that, like a Shane Bieber. If I'm giving up those kinds of the, the players that you're talking about in that package, Tanner, I think they're probably some of the same players that the Cardinals would be willing to entertain in the packages elsewhere for other things that can help them. And I think those things help them more than bringing in a guy like Sean Murphy, who's a nice player, would like to have him low on base percentage, low batting average, good defensively, but maybe not great. 
I don't think he's good enough to warrant that kind of a return personally. I'm with both of you guys just because I don't think Sean Murphy is that offensive player that you'd be looking for if you're going to make that move. And I don't think he's worth giving up the assets to go and acquire him when I can go get someone that, though he may not be great offensively, I know will be solid defensively and pay like $5 million bucks for a guy like Tucker Barnhart, Martin Maldonado, guys that will be highly coded on the free agent market. If you want a guy that's going to be an offensive catcher, I would rather just sign Wilson Contreras than go out there and make this trade for uh, Murphy. I just I don't want to do what I did with Sandy Alcantara and give up what could be. And maybe Tin Kentz or Graceffo's not that. But from everything we've heard about Tin Kentz, the guy is kind of trending the same direction as Alcantara did. And I don't know if I want to get into another bad spot where I trade away a guy and say, man, he would have been nice to have in our rotation, highlighting the front end of it. Can I interest you guys in somebody else that I would never have if thought of? If it's Tucker of? Barnhart, we don't even need to be doing this segment. I can't trade for him. Oh, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I found this interesting. So ESPN's been doing articles on every team that's been eliminated. They've been doing like three big offseason question marks. And I was reading Alden uh, Gonzalez of ESPN wrote about the Dodgers, and he had trade candidates for him. And surprisingly, one of the trade candidates he has listed is their catcher, Will Smith. Yes. And he says it because the Dodgers have the number 17 prospect in Kylie McDaniel's midseason rankings. Good name. And he says the Dodgers can get a haul for Smith, particularly to bolster their rotation. Perhaps they'll be tempted. Smith is entering his first year of arbitration. It brings a lot of value to a premium position, so he would be very highly coveted. What about if we said Will Smith, give him the starter they're looking for in Jack Flaherty? He probably got to part with someone that's got some pretty good club control that's highly touted. So Nolan Gorman, and maybe you can just, if you want to just ship Tyler O'Neill out, you can put O'Neill in the package as well. So Flaherty, Gorman, and O'Neill for catcher Will Smith from the L.A. Dodgers. Well, yep. so you have to include Graceffo as well. Now I'm on board, and now they're including Bruiser Gratterall. So you just got yourself a eighth-inning guy. Now Giovanni Gallegos over the next couple of years for the rest of this deal. He's going to be your seventh-inning guy. Jordan Hicks can fit into the middle innings as well, and Gratterall is going to be a guy that sets up for Ryan Helsley. So you just got your catcher of the future and the present, and you got yourself one of the, in my opinion, one of the most enjoyable relievers to watch in baseball who throws 98-99 with a deadly sinker. Why, why would they want to give him up? He's 24 years old. They've got him listed as a trade candidate, too, for Gratterall, mostly because they have a bunch of guys that can throw into their bullpen next oh, oh, year. And because he's a reliever. Like, the, the smart thing to do if you're a team is to sell high. He's 23. We got three years of really nice relief out of him. Let's go ahead and sell high. We're going to include him in a package with Will Smith. And because of that, we got a pitching prospect in return in a guy like Gordon Graceffo. Okay, well, let's let's separate these for a moment. Okay. Just the Will Smith package that was Tyler O'Neill, Nolan Gorman, Jack Flaherty. I'm hitting that button as hard as possible right now. I'm not, for what it's worth, I'm not sure that gets it done. I'm not sure that gets it done. Well, but in a scenario where it does, given, in a scenario where it does, I'm doing that. I don't care that I'm giving up Jack Flaherty. I don't care that I'm giving up Nolan Gorman. I don't care that I'm giving up uh, Tyler O'Neill because I'm getting a dude that is probably one of the best catchers in the game right now. And I'm set for the next. I don't know how long he's locked up for, but he's 27 years old. Four years, I think. I think who Will Smith. Yeah, it'd be three. I think he's starting year one of arbitration. Okay, so I got him locked up for three more years as a part of my winning window. I'm doing it. Now, if we get to the the Gratterall conversation and you're throwing him in there, still doing it, it, it might sting a little bit more because you're giving up what could be potentially somebody in your rotation and you're losing Jack Flaherty who's in there now and you're losing a guy who could be there this season or next season, but I'm fine with it because I'm getting back a legit 
This guy clicks two boxes for you, makes you better at the catcher position, and he adds that third bat for you. And if you want to, now you can look in the offseason to spend money on the Brandon Nimmo that you guys want or go out there and spend a little money and get the shortstop. I'm doing this deal no matter what to get Will Smith. I I would at least, if the car, or excuse me, the Dodgers are looking to move Smith, I would call. And if they asked for Flaherty, the only way you can part with Jack Flaherty, in my mind, is if you're willing to go and sign a legit starter in free agency, like a Carlos Rodon, a Justin Verlander, a uh, who my Jacob Degrom, like one of those guys. Because though I know Cardinals fans hate to hear this, but if I'm moving on from Jack Flaherty, I'm potentially pulling a ace out of my rotation if he's healthy. So if they say we want Jack Flaherty, I'm willing to do it. But that means that the Cardinals have to be willing to go spend big and go get another one of those top end guys. And I don't think we were talking about this. In the office, I don't think just bringing because then that would open up a second spot, not knowing what Wainwright's future is. I don't think bringing back Wainwright and Quintana is the answer if you're trading Jack Flaherty for Will Smith. I, I don't think that's the answer because though Adam Wainwright, I think, could be a solid pitcher for this team, and Jose Quintana was great when he got here. You just pulled away a potential ace from the rotation instead of that one-two combo we were just talking about earlier, where it could be Jack Flaherty, Miles Michaelis that could compete with the um, Degrom and Scherzer's of the world and stuff like that in the playoffs. Now you're only down to Michaelis, and you don't have that second guy. So if you're going to make a trade, and again, this is all speculation, and if it has to include Jack Flaherty because the Dodgers are looking for someone to kind of plug into that rotation, and Jack may have interest in re-signing in L.A., and the Dodgers may have interest in re-signing Jack Flaherty, you have to be willing to go spend and go get a legitimate top-end starter if you're the St. Louis Cardinals to pull that kind of a deal off. Here's my qu- Here's my concern with this kind of a move. Is Will Smith good enough to be that third bat that you guys are talking about? Because if the Cardinals are missing a third bat and you want to add that, I think Will Smith is a very good bat. He's had 24-plus home runs each of the last two seasons as a catcher. He's a two sixty hitter that gets on base at a pretty reasonable clip and slugs a little bit. So he's, he's a really good hitter. Is this the kind of guy, though, that can be that legitimate third bat in your lineup that you've been missing over the last couple of years? Because, let's be honest, they need that third guy. And if they don't have Tyler O'Neill to potentially become that because you traded him and Nolan Gorman and Jack Flaherty and this kind of a deal, you're probably counting on Will Smith, at least until Jordan Walker becomes the player that they believe he can be. You're probably going to need Will Smith to be that guy because I don't know that they're going to be able to spend on Will Smith, given what his arbitration number is going to be next year and beyond. And then if they go out there and sign a, a legit front-end starting pitcher as well, that's probably your two big off-season moves, is acquiring somebody like a Will Smith and then that front-end starter. I mean, he's got back-to-back seasons with 20-plus 20 20 home runs with 75-plus RBIs. He was hitting third for the Dodgers in the postseason, and uh, this season did not go well, but last two seasons he performed for them in the postseason. I don't think you make this trade and say that's it for our off-season. I still think you have to go out there and find – Maybe some complimentary pieces. If it were me, I'd sit there and say, go get Will Smith and then go get Brandon Nimmo because you're probably. They're not going to spend on Smith, Nimmo, and a front end starter. Like they, you're you talking make, about. Yeah, you might have to make another trade for a, star, a top end starter in that scenario, or you might be bringing back Wainwright and Quintana. But I don't in know that scenario. you have the pieces then to be able to trade for that other front end starter. Well, I think then you might be bringing back Wayno and Quintana. My issue. I'll figure the pitching out. And I understand we just talked earlier about having like legit guys. 
But if I got Michaelis, if I got Montgomery next season, those might be my one-two, and then I maybe can address it at the trade deadline. I can't address or I haven't been able to address my offensive problems over the last couple of seasons. I, I, I think if you went this route, I, I would probably still lean more towards the go get Brandon Nimmo, go get a $5 million catcher like Tucker Barnhart, and then uh, bring back Adam Wainwright, and you're probably in Jose Iglesias. Like, that would probably be more my kind of offseason. That way I feel like I've supplemented the roster a little bit more. Maybe you make a smaller trade like you move Tyler Orneone, get something for him. Uh, I, I do think that this is a route that they should at least think about because if you acquire Will Smith, I do think he's that third bat. I think he's the guy that you can hit. Either between Goldie and Arnado, if you want to, you can hit him in front of Goldie and Arnado. I think he's a legitimate third bat for you. I, I like Will Smith at that catcher position. He at least saw it for three years, and his estimate on uh, spot rack for his first year of ARB is $5.4 million. And then I think if we're talking about in this deal, you go and get a legitimate top-end starter. I mean, if I'm replacing one guy in Jack Flaherty that has a bunch of question marks because of his health, and I can go get a guy that I trust will go out there and give me 200 innings and he's going to shove in the postseason like a Justin Verlander, which I'm not sure is likely or not, but I think it's worth it on a one, two year deal. I, I think it'd be worth it. And then that outfield spot that you were talking about, they probably can't bring in a Brandon Nimmo, but you might be able to get someone in on like a one year deal. Can you hold down the fort and left field for just a season and provide us some consistency or go get a guy that can come in there and fill that spot until you feel like Jordan Walker is ready to go. And I should clarify the reason why Alex, I mentioned that I don't think that they can go out there and make multiple of those big moves that you were discussing is not because of what his arbitration number is this year. It's what it'll be by year two and three. If Will Smith is the player that they hope he becomes, He's going to be $10-plus plus million by year two and then potentially $20 million by year three in this deal. And if you're signing one of those guys that you're talking about to a multi-year contract like uh, Carlos Rodon, well, you're giving him a four- or five-year deal most likely this offseason. And now by year three, you've got $20 million tied into Will Smith, $25 million tied into Paul Goldschmidt, $35 million tied into Nolan Arenado. And then, oh, by the way, I've got a pitcher that's going to cost me $25 million in Rodon as well. So uh, you're just you're getting up there in a place where the Cardinals very, very unlikely are going to be willing to go. So it's about their future years, even more so than it is next year for them. Could they do like a Will Smith plus Jacob deGrom on a one year deal? I don't think deGrom's going to take a one year deal, but maybe Verlander's the better example of this. A one year, $43 million deal. Maybe. Because you're going to be removing a little bit of salary with Jack Flaherty and, in this scenario, Tyler O'Neill as well. So you probably end up coming out right around the place where they're expecting payroll to be next year with that kind of a construction. But again, now we're talking about no other moves that are made during the offseason. You're expecting all of the other young guys to come in and filter in behind them. And that's where it gets really difficult. So this is a scenario where you kind of have to, okay, if we if we add here, we can't add here. Where are we willing to go light? And so, so for that reason... I keep coming back to the place where it's like, hey, listen, this is not me saying I don't want Wilson Contreras or I don't want to go make a big move for a catcher. It's me saying I would rather do other things. I like Will Smith. The other problem, though, is he's right-handed. And against uh, right-handed pitching last year, he was a 776 OPS, which is good. But I don't think that's the big bat that they're looking for, especially when your two big bats that are already in your lineup are right-hand heavy as well. And they're both better a little bit, not not by huge margin, but a little bit against left-handed pitching. If you're going to add a big bat this offseason, I would like him to be left-handed if possible. So I, I think that there are just enough things that go about this kind of a situation. I would rather them spend those resources elsewhere. Go get go get your guy Bieber. Go get one of those front-end starting pitchers if you're going to make this trade. Or go get a uh, legit outfielder. Go get a legit shortstop. 
Those are the spots that I would be primarily looking towards as opposed to using this on a catcher. Coming up in about 15 minutes, could the looming free agency years for multiple blues actually be a blessing in disguise? We'll talk about that coming up at 1.30. In or out, 65780. It's the Air Comfort Service X line. That's next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with BK and Ferrario. I lost my, uh, I lost the air in my lungs on that last wound. Yeah, we noticed. And I had to like push I it out. You're doing like a Mario thing for No, a it was like salt and pepper. You had to pu- 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 push it. Real good. Thanks. How the hell do you get that reference? But because nothing else. I like you said during the break, I'm going to make soup when I get <laughs> Yeah, that. it's a soupy day. I don't understand that, man. Like, soup's not nice. even filling. Nice. My wife's the same oh. way. She wants to eat you soup make all some the time. cheese with it. Let's that's play a game of in or out. 670. 65780 is the Apple air Jack comfort American. server. Whoop. You want to try again? Sorry. I was... Hey, he's getting frustrated, man. So. 65780 is your comfort not. service text line for in or out. Guys, in or out. Corey Kluber is the number one starter that the Cardinals are looking for this offseason. He is a free agent. Yeah, out on that. Out. <laughs> he would have been a nice guy to acquire at the deadline. He's not a number, He's one, not starter a number one starter anymore. He's like a perfect number five now. Go get Corey Kluber's former teammate, uh, Shane Bieber. Corey That'll Kluber could have been brought in to be what Quintana, Quintana was. was. Uh, I would have gone Montgomery, but yeah. Oh, I don't know if he would have been that good. Montgomery was amazing until the postseason. I mean, he's fine. Quintana was better. 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Guys, in or out, the Cardinals will make moves this offseason that the majority of the fan base views as disappointing. And that's every move. I was going to say that's every offseason. Unless the name is going to be Trey Turner or Carlos Correa or Aaron Judge, it's going to be, oh, Mo went out there and got that schlub. That's who they're going to make the answer to be? I think they would still be disappointed like Judge. They'd like to see the contract and go, it's too much. No, no way. Um, um, No, those would be the three players that I could promise you people would not be disappointed. And Justin Verlander or Jacob deGrom. I'm, I, and I'm thinking the majority of fans, right? There is always going to be certain a certain segment of the fan base that literally regardless of the contracts, they will say this was a dumb move. Like even Twitter. Albert Pools last year, there was a it was a small segment. There was a segment of the fan base that said, don't do this. This is all about the nostalgia. You this don't is to call yourself out like yeah, that, man. Come on, man. You don't have to do that to yourself. I Like Aaron Judge would be a resounding. Everybody would be in. Who else would be on that list? I think Verlander. I think Verlander. Turner. Turner. I don't know if DeGrom would. I think there would be a, a people would be worried about the portion that would say he's been hurt for like yeah, the fair. entirety of the yeah. last three seasons. I think it's those. I think it's Verlander. I think it's Correa, Turner. I don't know about Correa because of the personality. I, I just think, don't know. I think a large segment would like Wilson Contreras because they he, feel like it's a carryover. I agree. And Carlos Rodon. People would be in love with Carlos See, Rodon I, signing. I think Rodon people would push back on because of injuries. Yeah, so, but he's the, he's the top of the rotation starter, and people always complain I mean, about going, the rotation. If we're going by that, then DeGrom would make the category. Yeah, but people are going to hate. Yeah, but DeGrom every season has injuries. At least Rodon's had the one-off. Yeah, literally one. <laughs> he was pretty good last year. I think those would be the guys, though. I, I can't think of anybody else that would fit into that category. And then it would just have to be trades. What do you think the reception would be if the Cardinals... Let's say they hypothetically signed Dansby Swanson to a six-year deal worth like $23 million per year. What do you think the reaction would be by our listenership? I think they'd be out on it. 
just because that feels like a really long-term contract for a short I think they'd like it that, hey, look, they finally addressed the shortstop spot, but I think they would say, A, that's too long a contract for Swanson, and B, if you're going to invest in him, why not invest in Turner or Correa? I think that's how they would probably Same. react. I'd be pretty underwhelmed by that addition. Can I read you his OPS plus by year? I don't know. No, please don't. Stats are for losers, I've heard. 68, 88, 89, 110 during the 2020 pandemic season, 60-game season. 99, 110. Or excuse me, 115 this year. I mean, he's been below average or just slightly above average offensively basically every year of his major league career. And that's the guy we're giving $23 million to on a long-term ex- on a long-term deal. I think there's a reason why the Braves have signed basically everybody on their roster long-term other than him. That's not a guy you built around. He's a fine piece, but I want him when he's cheap, not when I'm paying him 20-plus mil a year. So that would be something that I am not interested in. I don't know if I'm with the majority of the fan base on that or not, though, because I think a lot of people view him as, this guy won a World Series. He was the starting shortstop. He's an everyday option for you there. He's slightly above average. He'll be good. He's good defensively. I see the argument. I just disagree with it. I'd be underwhelmed by it, too. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for in or out. Guys, in or out. Jordan Walker will not only be on the Cardinals opening day roster next year, but by the end of the season, we will be saying he is the third big bat that the Cardinals were looking for. At the end of the season? Mm-hmm. I'm going to say I'm out on that, mostly because by the end of the season, I don't think we're going to be saying that. It's not unless this kid is like the next coming of Mike Trout. It's going to take a little bit of time for him to become that third big bat for the team. I think you'll see signs of it, but I don't know if people will be saying that by the end of the season. So I'll say I'm out. I'm out on this for two reasons, and they're not shots against Jordan Walker. One, I'm not sure he's going to make the opening day roster. I think they'll be very cautious with how he looks in spring training, unless he just lights the world on fire, then maybe he will make the then he will make the only roster, but I'm not sure he'll do that in spring training. So I think he'll spend a little bit of time in We said by Memphis. the end of the season, right? I know, yeah, but you said opening day as well. Opening day roster. Gotcha. Hey, come on, man, you read the question. I was uh, <laughs> I was focused on the latter part of it. But I, I'm not sure okay. so I'm not sure he makes the opening day roster. I think he kinda goes the Gorman route where he's up in June. And then I agree with Alex. I think you'll see some really good surges from Jordan Walker, but I think he's gonna go probably with better overall numbers than what Gorman had but it'll be kind of the same effect. We'll see him playing really well, and then he'll go through a little bit of a lull, and then he'll find to make adjustment. Baseball makes the adjustment back. I think he'll go through a little bit of those lulls in his first season. I think by the time you get into year two, that's when you're talking about him being one of those legitimate third bats. In or out? I think I'm out on this for next year. I think no. I think Walker by 2024 will be the third big bat that you're looking for. I, I don't think that the Cardinals can plan on that next year. If it is, added benefit. And now you've got four of them. But I think next year going into the season, you should expect that not to be the case. In or out, Nolan Gorman gets traded this offseason. And I mean, we played the audio from Keith Law, and I know that was in the middle of the season before the trade deadline, but I think that same sentiment is to be true this offseason. You have built an incredible farm team with a lot of players that you feel like are going to be impacted on this roster, but guess what? A lot of them play the positions that are already filled by certain players. Move them to go get the piece that you are dying to have on your team right now. They have the opportunity to do it, and I think Nolan Gorman's going to be the centerpiece for it. I'm out. I, I think Nolan Gorman's your starting DH come opening day. Uh, we talked to Ollie, what was that, Friday? 
And he mentioned that he really liked what he saw from the rookies, and Gorman's a part of that class. I think he talked about Gorman in that I think conversation. Think other guys first, though. I don't know, but he also he did talk about the. We asked him about how your infield does it change with the shift. You got to have more athleticism. He said yes. So I lean towards they were impressed with what they got from Gorman this year, even though he had that late struggle in September. He actually got a hit in the playoffs, which not a lot of people can say. And uh, I think they'll instead of having him try and jam a square peg into a round hole, they'll make him a DH. And I think he'll be the everyday DH, and he'll be the starting DH come opening day. So I'm out on this. I think it's possible that multiple of these players, maybe as many as three of them, will be traded by opening day of next year. Dylan Dylan Carlson, (laughs) Nolan Gorman, Tyler O'Neill. Alec Burleson, Juan Yepes, Lars Newbar. You still think Dylan Carlson's going to get traded? I don't know. I'm saying out of these six, I think as many as three of them could be traded. I don't know who it's going to be out of that group because I think that's your group of like DH outfield types. And I I don't know who they're going to build around, but I don't think they're going to have all of them on the opening day roster next year. I'd be pretty shocked by that. In fact, I think Tyler O'Neill is the most likely one out of that group to be traded. And then I I really wonder what it... I think it depends on how other teams value the group of Burleson, Yepes, and Nupar. And and Gorman, you could throw into that criteria as well. Because I think those are the other ones that are more likely to be traded than Carlson. I think out of that six, Carlson would be sixth on my likelihood to be traded going into next year. But I, I think it's probable, in fact, that at least two of them are traded out of that group that I just listed. I agree with that. I would say O'Neal's definitely number one for me. I think Yepes would be number two just because I think a lot of teams will look at him and say he's got a pretty good arm. He can play in the outfield. He can be DH. We saw he can hit. I'm not sure who I would have as number three because I don't think Gorman. I don't think Carlson. Newport maybe would be my number three. I I think Burleson. I I still think he's got a shot to be a pretty good player, but he looked really overmatched when he was up here with the big league club, and I think that'll dilute his value a little bit. So I'd probably say Newport three with Burleson four. I would only do four of them because I don't think Carlson's in the conversation. I don't think Newport's in the conversation. I think it's Burleson, Yepes, Gorman, and O'Neal. You don't have any chance Newt gets traded? No, because I think they like him as that fourth option, especially that he's left-handed and he's really good defensively. Only reason I would say maybe is because I think other teams view him as having a lot of potential and having a lot of value as well. Got a long term on his deal, and I'm not saying they should or will trade him. I would keep Newt, but he's got a lot of value. And like, for example, if they decided, hey, let's take a look at this deal with the Dodgers. Dodgers are a team that I think was would identify Newtbar as being a hmm. There's something there. He could be a 240 hitter that hits for a lot of pop, left-handed bat, pretty good glove in the outfield, has a lot of speed as well. They could say, hey, that's our Trace Thompson replacement. And we've got him for the long term over the next four or five years. So I I think Newt has some value. I'm really curious to see what they decide to do out of that group. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll have the BK and Ferrario Rewind. But next, could the looming free agency year be a blessing in disguise for the Blues? Talk about it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Blues to Barbashev, he scores! Ivan Barbashev has put the Blues on top. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. I came in today and I said, Alex, what did you have as your biggest takeaway? Because he was in the building. Blues versus the Blue Jackets. The Blue Jackets are now just known as the Jackets. We can refer yes. to them as the Columbus Jackets from now on because the Battle of the Blue went in favor of the Blues. Ah, People don't get that joke anymore. That wasn't your biggest takeaway, though, was that the Blues won the battle. Yeah. It was they instead. 
hey, you know, this free agency year, the walk year that a lot of these guys are going into, Tarasenko, Barbie, and O'Reilly being the three most prominent ones, maybe this could be a blessing in disguise for the Blues. Why? Because I think you're talking about three impactful players on this team that are going into a unrestricted free agency that could really put some... I, I mean, look, this is a big-time moment for all three of these guys, if you really think about it. I mean, you got two players who are 31 years old, and then the other one, Ivan Barbashev, what's he sitting at, 28 years old, somewhere around then? Barbashev is going into his first real big-time contract opportunity. Ryan O'Reilly is coming off of a contract that he signed with the Buffalo Sabres, but also coming off of being a captain for a team that won a Stanley Cup while he was a member of it. And then Vladimir Tarasenko is coming off another 80-point season and 31 years old removed from a shoulder surgery. All three guys, I feel like, have something to prove, which to me, as much as you watch these guys play, and I know it because I saw so many text messages come in saying, oh, man, how are you going to lose Barbashev and Vladimir Tarasenko after this game performance? As much as it's going to sting to sit here and look at it and say, realistically, you're probably losing two of these three free agents at the end of the year. Think about what it could do if you had three guys who were going to have career years or close to it because they're going into unrestricted free agency. It's rare that you get three massive players like this who go into free agency at the same time. I think this could be a benefit for this Blues team, specifically in the Central Division. So I... I would put O'Reilly in a separate category because he's proven so much. I, I don't know how much changes in terms of his value this year, depending on what he does. I, I think he's kind of established at this point in time. I think it's different, though, for Vladdy and Ivan Barbashev. If Vladdy has another year similar to what he did last year, where he once again is a 30 plus goal scorer, you can write him down for a point per game type of a player. And he's just a guy that you set into your lineup and you know exactly what you're going to get. Well, then I think other teams around the league, when or if he leaves St. Louis, would say, okay, we can write off the two seasons where he was hurt because he was clearly hurt. And other than that, every year since he became a full-time starter, 30-plus goals. And you can just set it in stone. For him, that adds a whole hell of a lot of money onto that next contract. If he goes back down and you say to yourself, okay, well, he's a 20-goal scorer this year. I don't know, man. Maybe maybe we're starting to look at a little bit of a decline as he's getting into his early 30s. We're probably not going to give him that same kind of deal that we would have if he was able to back up his his big time 2021 season. Barbie's similar to me, maybe even more so. I think Barbie has more money on the line than any of these other two guys that we've just talked about with O'Reilly and Tarasenko. The reason why is because I think a lot of teams around the league probably view Barbie the way that I do right now, which is to say last year was a really nice season for him. And I'm not trying to take anything away because it was awesome to watch what he was able to do. 60 points, 26 goals. However, he did so on a 23% shooting percentage. That is completely unsustainable. Like the, the league will just view that as as that normalizes and he gets closer to his career norm, which is 15 to 17 percent. He is probably going to be a guy that last year would have settled into like in a 15 to 17 goal score. Is he a fourth line player? Is he a third line player? Can he play top six for you? Those are the things that we're going to find out this year. If he's able to back up a 26 goal season with a, another 20 plus goal season, this could be a guy that gets a multi-year offer at a Brandon Saad type of a contract. And a lot of teams in the Western Conference, in my opinion, don't have that type of player if he has that season. And to have that season 
going into an unrestricted free agent period, I think that's massive for this team. Absolutely. And I do agree with you. Ryan O'Reilly doesn't have much to prove, although I'm sure internally he's probably trying to because he's trying to get the most money out of St. Louis. Vladimir Tarasenko, the other one. Like I'm, I'm starting to wonder if Vladdy has himself a big-time season because of all of the going into free agency. He's not the top dog, wants to be the top dog. But it's just just watching those guys play in that game Saturday night. I'm sitting here thinking, you watched Colorado dominate last season. And Colorado had Nachushkin, who was a free agent. And Burkowski, who was a free agent. And Kadri, who was a free agent. Think about Calgary. Calgary, with Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Goudreau. Those teams benefited from those players having the best season of their career because they knew what was coming at the end of it. And if you're Doug Armstrong... You're sitting here going, yeah, you know what? We're probably only going to be able to re-sign one of these guys. Maybe none of them, depending on what our salary looks like and how our team's shaped up. But give us your best season, and we'll give you our best offer. But if anything, you're going to go into free agency as a Stanley Cup champion, and that's going to boost the price there. So I, I just think this is an advantage for the Blues that other people don't have the luxury of having. Coming up next, we'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind, and we'll give you a chance, as we will each and every day this week, oh. to win a free pair of tickets to see Dead & Company. That's all coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We don't have time for this. No, we do. Can you just explain what took place during that commercial break? I don't know how to explain it. I took a multivitamin. No, you didn't. Normally, people take multivitamins and it's fine. What did you, you were that bird that like sits on a thing and like its head dips down 15 times into the water. BK literally just took a pill. He put a pill in his mouth and he took a and swig of water. And he his head backwards 16 yeah, times. Like he had a ball on his nose Were you something. trying to force the pill down your throat? Yeah. Do you not know how to take a pill, man? I do, you. Throwback. <laughs> well, you didn't do that. You didn't do that. You did that eight times. Yeah, because I had anxiety. You were looking over here. It was, it was <laughs> what weird. What anxiety man. about, man? Performance anxiety. It's weird. It, okay, we got to give with away. That, without Adam's apple, man, you should have not have any issues with this. He didn't even laugh, which makes me really uncomfortable right yeah, now. Yeah, that was too far. Was hey, it? we have your chance every day this week to win a pair of tickets to see Dead & Company, the final tour, this time for real, to Hollywood Casino Amphitheater next summer on June 7th. Tickets for Dead & Company just went on sale, but we've got your chance to win free tickets on the show right now here on 101 ESPN if you're text number 101 at 65780, and you can tell us what the number one scary movie was on Alex's list according to science. Yes, it's real. It's science. <laughs> you are going to be the winner of a pair of tickets to see Dead and Company next summer. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, and the free 101 ESPN app is where you find it. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Coming up at 4.15, the fast end, we'll have Craig Berube. Tomorrow, we'll have Danny Mack and Jeremy Rutherford on the show. My final show for two weeks with the two of you, and I can't oh, no. be more excited. Does that mean? Does that mean you have to... 
do the punishment tomorrow? Nope. And for all of you guys that want to, speaking of which, get your votes in. You can do so at 101 ESPN, uh, the free app, or at 101 ESPN on Twitter. There's three options for you. What's my punishment going to be this week for the 17th time over the first 17 weeks of the oh, NFL the season? It's all available to you to vote there. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Peloton, let's go. This holiday with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.